Okay, I think we're good. All right, well, I will just start for the record by saying that my name is Michelle Marino, and I am here interviewing um, Tom, is it Weiss? Weiss. And, mm -hmm. and what's your full name? Thomas John Weiss. Thomas John Weiss, okay. Mm -hmm. And it, today's date is Monday, December 17th, uh, 27, 2018, dates are hard, 2018, and we are at his home in Fort Wayne. So, um, I'll start with some easy questions of okay. when and where were you born? I was born and raised uh, right here in Fort Wayne. It's okay. uh, kind of an interesting thing because it's uh, my business that, that I had. I, I, when I got out of high school, I, I went to the GE Apprentice School. And uh, so my career, business career, was with General Electric. And the interesting thing was is that uh, uh, although there were, you know, I got into management, uh, nobody could ever believe that I never left Fort Wayne. <laughs> So I stayed here my whole career. Wow. And, uh, but oh, where were you born in the city, or what part did you? I was born in the inner city. I was actually born in the inner city, and which was a, a real benefit for me because it uh, allowed me. I, I grew up with uh, African Americans. I grew up with Hispanics, mm -hmm. and uh, I, you know, I, I, you don't like to. It sounds kind of strange to say it, but I mean, we were not middle class we were lower income i guess mm -hmm. you'd say so uh that was uh but it gave me it it, <laughs> it gave me something that uh uh i think stayed with me my uh, my whole life that i never forgot where my beginnings were mm -hmm. and uh so when i uh you know i i like to think that my life was somewhat of a success which which, uh, you know, in, in that regard, but uh, I never forgot my roots and I never forgot those that didn't have something mm -hmm. when I did legislation or whenever I did anything in my career, so. Okay, when was your actual birth date? Birth date was October 24th, 1942. Okay. And uh, I was uh, the third of four, four children. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was a factory worker for General Electric, in fact. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and uh, so that, uh, you know, she was always there for us as kids. And, uh, but, uh, so I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Okay. And what were your parents' names? My, my father was John Paul Weiss, and my mother was uh, Winifred Ann, and her maiden name was Ebersole. Okay. So uh, my dad was uh, a was the, what was he? He would have been the seventh of nine children. His wow. father was, came from Switzerland and his mother came from Austria. And uh, my mother's parents came from New York, so wow. had kind of a mixer. Yeah. Um, now, being born sort of right in, or, you know, first year or two of World War II, was your father doing war work at my, or You know, my father was, uh, it was an interesting thing. My dad was too young for the First World War and too old for mm -hmm. the Second World War. Yeah. And so his job, uh, he worked at, at General Electric and uh, was in, in the factory there. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I was trying to think whether when his career started with General Electric, but uh, you know, he was, uh, they, my parents went through the depression like a lot of people with, mm -hmm. you know, some bad times and everything like mm -hmm. that. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, Dad, uh, I'm trying to remember when he went to work for General Electric, and I can't remember yeah. that. Okay. 
Um, and, and what were the names of your siblings? You said you had three. I have siblings. an older brother, Don, uh, another brother, Dale, and uh, a younger sister, Kathy. Okay. Well, how would you describe your childhood? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, you know, you look back and you realize you didn't have much, but, you know, it was a wonderful childhood. I mean, my parents were loving and, and uh, the kids were spread out. Uh, my oldest brother is 10 years older than me. Oh, wow. My other brother is six years older than me. And my sister is five years younger than me. Yeah. So we were kind of spread out like that. But uh, no, uh, you know, we, uh, we didn't, uh, you know, Christmas wasn't, you know, like it is today. I can't believe what I spent on my grandkids. <laughs> but but um, had a loving home. Uh, my father, uh, was he worshipped his, his children. And, uh, you know, we, I can still remember the good memories of vacations that we took. We were the original Indiana wanderers, I guess you'd call us, where, you know, when we take a vacation, it would usually be to one of the state parks or something like that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, damn, my dad and my brothers, we used to hunt together and, uh, had, had a very, very good upbringing and, uh, uh, you know, on a factory worker's salary. So, yeah, it's harder to do that. To yeah, it, age, I think. well, it's remarkable when I look back. I, I looked up one time here what I was able to go into research and find out what average pay was mm -hmm. for factory workers back. Yeah, because uh, when I was, um, let's see, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, I had I got braces. And I think what my parents, I know what they paid a month. I don't know what they paid as a down payment, but I know what they paid as a month. And it was a significant hunk of my dad's wages for me to have braces so that it would crack my teeth. And, yeah. you know, that was, boy, I, I looked back and I saw what he made and I thought, whoa, how the heck did he do that? Yeah. So. Wow. Well, who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Oh, uh, you know, I, when I say that, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. It, uh, I think my parents, my, my mom was, uh, uh, she's the one that everybody says that I got my outgoing personality from, if you will. My dad was, my dad was pretty shy person like that. But, uh, you know, when I was a kid, it was, you know, looking up at your teachers and mm -hmm. so forth like that. Uh, it's, that's another funny part is that, when you think back and you think, I can still remember my grade school teachers. Mm -hmm. I can remember their names. I can remember my kindergarten teacher. And I can remember what she, what they looked like. Mm -hmm. And it's really strange how after, you know, I mean, I'm 76 now and I go, how can you remember that kind of stuff? But you do. But uh, yeah, I remember, in fact, yeah, I, I can still remember, uh, I can remember a teacher that, uh, that taught me a lesson that stayed with me my whole life, and I think about it to this day. And I was in the third grade, and her name was Miss Yuzviak. She was uh, a Polish a Polish lady, actually from Poland. And uh, but we would sit down in a circle, and she would read to us. And I went in there and. Uh, she said, all right, everybody sit down. And I, there was a, 
young girl next to me, whose name I would not want you to use. And I said, move over, fatty. And Miss Uzviak, who loved me, said, Tommy, come outside. And I went outside in the hall, and she talked to me about how I made that little girl feel and how terrible it was. And she wanted me to, to know that I, how disappointed she was in me. And it killed me. I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was something that when I did the bullying bill, it was, uh, I mean, I could, I was, it was so vivid. It was almost like I could see that. But that was something from that time, I can, you know, from what, 60, 60, 70 years earlier, no, 70, 65 years earlier. So you felt like but, the way the teacher handled that in particular, like made you understand? Oh, absolutely. Well, it, it changed me for, it, it made me aware. And I think my, my whole school time and my adult life, I understood what bullying was. Mm -hmm. And uh, from a, an experience that I created myself, mm -hmm. so that was. Uh, wow. But that's funny to think back like that on something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh. Well, you were just mentioning that teacher being from Poland and that your family had been from other areas. How and when did your family get to Indiana? My parents. My, well, my mother came from New York when she was twelve. My father was born and raised here. Okay. Uh, my grandparents came over. My grandfather, believe it or not, was born in 1856. And I never knew by that, my grandpa Wies. Uh, but uh, he came here from Switzerland and my grandmother, on my maternal, or paternal grandmother came from Austria. And they came over in the 1800s sometime mm -hmm. like that. Wow. But my mom came from, they were, she was born and raised in New York till she was 12. And my grandfather was a railroader, and they moved him to Fort Wayne, and that's that's how they came to Fort Wayne. Okay. So that was, uh, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, okay. Well, what understanding, if any, did you have about your family's political beliefs or uh, politics as a young kid? My mother and father uh, were on direct relief which now is welfare, mm -hmm. what they call welfare. When my brother was born, and I can remember, and that's when I talk about something that stayed with me, I didn't have to live through that, but it always made me sensitive on, on that kind of an example of mm -hmm. you know what welfare really is mm -hmm. to people. And was that during but the Depression During too? the Depression, yes. My dad did not have a job and ended up getting a job on what was called the WPA, and, uh, but I can remember my mother telling me where they lived in, at that time, she only had one glove for my oldest brother and she would get up during the night and switch hands on the glove, you know? Yeah. And then you think about the way today that we waste money or we do stuff. Yeah. That's, uh. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, when she told me that story. I thought, wow, you know. Yeah. But uh, now that I, I mean, it wasn't that way when, when, you know, when when I was a kid. You know, mm -hmm. I always had clothes mm -hmm. and everything. I just didn't have a lot of everything. You sure. Know, that was. A, so yeah. did that make your parents Roosevelt supporters or? Oh yeah, that's uh, to that point. My mom and dad were original Roosevelt supporters. Totally, mm -hmm. totally so. 
In fact, a great story with, uh, and then my mother, when I said that she didn't work uh, before I was born, she worked some uh, in a court system. She worked for, um, I don't remember, down at the Allen County Courthouse. I remember her telling me that. Mm -hmm. But my mother was more of someone that looked at the individuals rather than my dad. My dad was totally. And the greatest story in the world, and I told this story and it just killed my dad when he found out I told it. But um, the first year that I ran for office was 1976. And I'd been real active in JCs. That's how I got involved even in, into, into even considering it, you know, from the, I just, I love the, the community involvement and all that stuff and I just totally was my bag. So my dad, for the first time in his life, voted for a Republican, and that was his son, Tommy. And uh, after that, my father was considered on the Republican rolls a one, because every time he voted, you know, he registered Republican and he voted Republican. But uh, in 1980, uh, my dad always asked me, Tommy, he said, you tell me, you know who the people are, you tell me who are the good ones and, in the primary and all. <laughs> in the 1980 election, I came home from work and I lived, my father uh, had purchased property on the Wallen Road, that's where I used to live. And uh, we called it Weesville. And uh, my Brother Dale had two acres, my sister Kathy had two acres, my mother and father had two acres, I had four acres. And the reason I ended up with four is I bought two acres, but then my oldest brother, he didn't want to be in a compound. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up buying the other two off of my dad. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I come home from work and my dad come over and he says, Tommy, he said, I want to be honest with you. He said, I voted for Quayle. He said, like you told me to for the Senate. And he said, and I voted for Danny Fiegel for sheriff, like you told me to. But he said, I just couldn't vote for Reagan. <laughs> he said, I voted for Anderson. And I said, well, dad, that's okay. I said, don't worry about it. Well, no, I know how you really wanted Reagan. And, but I, I, Tommy, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> and it was so funny. Well, anyway, so I told this story to Orvis Beers, who was the chairman of the Republican Party at that time. And Orvis Beers thought that was probably the greatest story he'd ever heard. Well, somehow it came out at a family thing or something that I told it. Oh, my dad was so upset with me. <laughs> because he thought the laughter was was embarrassment yeah. more than it was. Yeah. Oh, Dad. <laughs> so, to say the least, but, you were you were aware of their politics yeah. and things. And even as you got older, so we didn't necessarily... You know why my dad, you know why my dad opposed Reagan? Mm -hmm. Because my father was a union worker, factory worker for General Electric. Ronald Reagan was a spokesperson for General Electric, and therefore he had to be favored management. That was my dad's thought process. Yeah. Had nothing to do with what Reagan stood for or anything else. 
it was that impression. Yeah. So. How interesting. So, that's a funny story. Um, well, I know you said you, you grew up and have remained really in Fort Wayne um, your whole life, but what schools did you attend as a, a child and then a teenager? Uh, I went to Southside. Well, I went to James Smart grade school. Okay. That was for eight years, and then I went to Southside High School. I graduated in 1960. Was in an automobile accident in January of 60 and darn near killed myself. Oh my goodness. And while I was in the hospital, there was an elderly man that was in my room that was dying. I still can, oh, it's out of memory. But his son was a manager with GE. And while I was there, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I want to go to Purdue because I want to be a, teach math. I love math. And uh, he said, well, why don't you consider the GE Apprentice School? And I said, I don't know what that is. My dad didn't know what it was. So uh, when I got out of the hospital then, I stayed in touch with this guy. By the way, his father died in my room. Then. Oh, my gosh. I could, oh, God, was that horrible. But I ended up going down, and I applied for the GE Apprentice School, and I was accepted, except they had a big strike in 1960, which meant I couldn't go until the next year. So I ended up taking a couple of classes at Purdue, at that time, I guess I was working part-time for Rogers. In what's that? Grocery store. Okay. And I went to, I did a couple of classes at Purdue, which was down the old downtown area. You wouldn't believe how dark that was area. Yet. And uh, I got in the apprentice school in July of 61. I did that for four years. And during that period of time, instead of becoming a tool maker, which is what I was training for, they liked me and they put me into the office. And uh, after about two years, I guess I did that. And I ended up being placed where this guy was the manager. And so when I graduated from the apprentice school uh, in six, January 65, they ended up putting me into the manage, or the uh, manufacturing management program for GE. So I was an apprentice graduate in the management program, which is with all college graduates, which was an interesting thing because I hadn't had college. And I did that for three years. And then I ended up going out to uh, Purdue here in Fort Wayne, IPFW. Mm -hmm. And I started that in 1970, and then I finished out there in 76. So were you working at the same time you're yeah. in the school, like the apprentice program? Exactly. And plus I was in the Air Guard. I got into the Air Guard in 66. So I was doing that and going to school and working. And then in 76, I was still in the Guard. I got into government. I ran for county council. And I was working at General Electric. And how the hell did I do all that? <laughs> and have a family uh -huh. and do outside activities? I don't know. Well, um, what, what was the apprentice program training you to do? Well, it started out, it was to be a machinist toolmaker. Okay. And that's what, that's what the training program uh -huh. was for. But I only was in the shops doing those kind of, uh -huh. you know, working on equipment and stuff like that for two years. And then I got 
put into the office rather than staying in the mm -hmm. in, in there. And that was a was a stroke of luck, really, yeah. for me for career wise. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had I had friends who started out in apprentice school that stayed toolmakers the rest, yeah. rest of their life. Like, well, what then did you take <coughs> classes for at IPFU? <coughs> When I was out there, industrial supervision. Okay. That's what my degree got in. Okay. So, okay. But, oh, go ahead. No, no. And uh, but what what happened at GE was uh, in my assignments and that when I first went to uh, when I first graduated from the apprentice school, I was a planner, and then I got into manufacturing engineering, and then I became a foreman. I did that for a year, and I went into customer service, and when I was in customer service, they liked what I was doing, and the marketing people said, we will have, bring you into marketing if you will start college. Hmm. And that's how I ended up the progression like that. Where It was kind of a weird thing because it seemed like, gee, that seemed like everything was fast, and it was in a way, mm -hmm. career-wise like it. But then I went into marketing in uh, 1970. That's when I started out at IPFW. And I stayed in marketing till I, that's how I ended my career with GE. I, I got an early out in 2000. So. Wow. But, so uh, in the middle of that then, what made you decide to also join the Air Guard? Well, I joined the Air Guard in, actually in 66. So 65 was where, was when I graduated from the apprentice school. And what had happened interestingly about that is, in 1964, a buddy of mine had joined the Guard. And so I went out and took tests and all that stuff. And uh, when I was through, they, you know, I had great scores. And they said, well, you can leave such and such. And I said, well, I'm getting married in January. And they said, well, wait a minute. We can't take married men. We're not taking... Cause the, the, the draft was not drafting married men. They said, we can't take you, we have to take some, someone that is, you know, that's eligible for the draft. And I thought, okay. So I got married. Well, a year later, a girl that I'd gone to high school with worked for the draft board. And she called me up and she said, hey Tom, she said, if you can get in the guard, she said, or the reserves, you better consider it, you're, you're coming up very close on the draft. So I got a hold of the guard, and they said, well, there's 400 and some people ahead of you now. And I said, well, that's kind of crazy. I said, you're the ones that, that didn't let me join, you know, a year and a half ago. They said, what do you mean? And I told them, and, and I can still remember this major anger. And he said, let me call you back. And he called me back a couple hours later, and he said, would you take a clerk job? And I said, well, if that gets me in the guard, I will. Mm -hmm. And he said, all right. He said, come out here. And I went out to the guard, and they got me in. That was my only salvation because I, had, I had, was willing to do it a year and a half earlier, you know, yeah. on my own. So that got me in, and it kept me out of the draft. So in the guard, I was enlisted, and I was a clerk, and then I got up, and I got up to... I don't know, I was in, I guess, three and a half years, and I got up to a sergeant rank, and uh, I was thinking to myself, 
you know, I can do what officers do. I mean, I, you know, I can. And they had at that time a direct commission where you didn't have to be a college graduate. And in September of 69, I was commissioned. And that's how I started my officer career with the, so I was a, an officer and my only education before that, well, I had, you know, seven years with GE's management program, you know, but uh, that's funnier than hell that I got to be a, I got to be an officer like that, that way. Yeah. And I think in Indiana, I think I was the last one to receive a direct commission. Wow. Which is, uh, that was back in 69. So that's how I started my my guard career. So was it just interest in the guard, or were you thinking about Vietnam sort of in the well, background? Well, when I when I went in, yeah, I was, you know, at the that was you know that was becoming the hot spot of the at the hottest time and everything, mm -hmm. and I was thinking that <clears throat> I don't mind serving, but I I wasn't really that interested in going to Vietnam yeah. and I was able to get into the guard and of course it's a six-year commitment and I thought oh my god that's a whole lifetime and I ended up staying 31 and a half years uh -huh. it, and so when you say commitment it was it full-time at that point was it weekends? no it was weekends yeah okay. weekends in summer okay yeah Interesting. yeah um, so what did your service look like during that time then? Well, when I was commissioned, uh, then I, be, I was, at first, I was, uh, I was in supply, and I did that for, uh, let's see, from the time I was commissioned until, I stayed in supply, I guess, for 14 years. And then I was put into maintenance and I became a maintenance officer over IRF-4s, which was really an interesting change in, in position like that. I did that for three years. And then I became the first, for the Air National Guard for Indiana, I became the, what was called the social actions officer. And that was, that's the one that deals with all the issues now that are, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, with it's more like human relations or mm -hmm. something like that, but mm -hmm. that was a tough job. And let me tell you why when you're dealing with military people where you have men and women, I can still remember uh, there was a guy that got had uh, was brought up uh, on charges with uh, comments to uh, one of the female people there. And I can still remember him sitting in the office with me. And I told him, I said, hey, I said, it's up to your commander what's done with you. But I'm telling you right now, if this kind of a uh, situation continues, I said, you're going to go to jail. I can still remember that guy looking at me like, you know. And what's so funny about it, it was 30 years ago. And in today's time, he'd have been fired immediately. He would not have been given any kind of a chance or anything like that, but I can still remember that guy. What a snake he was. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, then I went on. I was, after the, after the social actions, then I became the executive officer for the commander. Mm -hmm. And then I went down to uh, state headquarters in 89. 
and I was the public information officer for the state Indiana mm -hmm. Air National Guard. Wow. I did that until 97 when I retired. So that was, uh, <laughs> and the funny part about it, when you said is that was that weekends and that, you know, it meant a, really a lot more time that you were doing as an officer because, you know, there were times when it wasn't just the weekend, you had other times mm -hmm. too. And, and I thought back on that and I had great family life, great business career, uh -huh. political, I'm doing all this stuff. And now I think, what did I, how did I do it? Yeah. How did I, I must waste a lot of time now. <laughs> yeah, if you're able to cram all that yeah. in. Yeah. Well, so how then, especially, you know, during your time in the Guard and as the Vietnam War is heating up and as you're starting to think about entering politics, because you said 76 for city 76, council. 76, yeah. So like, in what ways did your awareness of politics evolve as you were getting older? Well, the, the part that I, <laughs> there was another thing that I was doing. In 69, there was a, one of the managers over there was a member of the Fort Wayne JCs. The and managers at GE or the, at? Or, at GE. Okay. And he uh, was constantly on, you got to come down to the JCs. You'll really enjoy it. We do all kind of community projects and everything. And I said, I don't know. And he said, no, I said, you got to come down. I went down to two meetings with him. And in January of 69, I joined the Fort Wayne JCs. By April, I was the hall manager for the JCs ran the uh, Fort Wayne home show at that time at the Coliseum. I just totally got involved in that and they were all kind of community projects. And over the years, and, and it's, you know, it's embarrassing to me when I talk about it, because when people say, were you married and had family at that time? Because somehow I involved my family apparently with it. Like I remember taking my kids, you know, to stuff. And I, but I did the, I formed uh, different projects that were around the community. Mm -hmm. And the one that where I got involved with government was in 1970, I created what was called the Mayor's Ambassadors. And we were designated the official city hosts by the uh, mayor at that time, Mayor Harold Zeiss. And uh, <clears throat> they would use us when dignitaries would come to Fort Wayne. And uh, I can remember, you know, uh, we had uh, well, the, the, our companies, wherever you worked, you had to go to your manager and ask, and they bought us a gold jacket, gold uh -huh. gaudy, <laughs> and we had our, our black pants and everything like that. And uh, I ended up getting a hold of one of the car dealers who had the Lincoln Mercury dealership here in Fort Wayne, and I told him what the project was. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll loan you a, a Lincoln whenever you have someone in town. Because when we'd have them, we'd usually use our own car or something yeah. like that. So when we would bring dignitaries to town, I, and I don't know who they, one time I didn't, we didn't take him in that car. He had his own vehicle. But one time we had uh, uh, 
Oh, God, he was vice president under Nixon. Spiro Agnew. Yeah, I know. The one that got in trouble. <laughs> that about killed me when he went in trouble because I was so excited. I got to meet and shake his hand and be with him and had his arm around me and all this kind of stuff, you know. I thought the guy was king until he did what he did. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I got involved with the party at that time then. And, uh, and it the was Republican really... Republican Party. Yeah. Through the JCs. But actually, it was the, the Democrats and the Republicans, but it just started no more of the Republicans and a lot of the JC kids, guys, were Republicans. And so I just kind of went into that kind of uh, uh-huh. arena there. And uh, in uh, the spring of 76, wow, actually, what it must have been, must have been late 75, <laughs> because it was for the... <clears throat> before the uh, primary, must have been 75. I can remember being at a, at a, uh, uh, what they call it, it used to be before Kmart, and uh, it was one of the Republican uh, officials, and he said, why don't you consider running for office? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, what what's available? And he said, well, he said, there's the legislature. He said, we've got an opening for the House. And I said, well, what, what's that thing? And he started telling me, and I said, nah, that doesn't sound like, because my kids were little. And he said, well, he said, there's a county council spot, too. I said, really? So I said, well, let me think about that. So I go down to JC's, and I'm talking to all the guys, and of course, they're all going nuts. Ah, oh, this is cool. We'll do it. We'll put together a campaign committee. And everything. My campaign committee in 19, for 76 was all JCs, and it was the funniest thing you've ever seen because we'd go down, we had signs, and we'd put up signs, and and I had always been close ever since I was a little kid with police officers. All through school, that's the thing that kept me out of trouble, I think, or that my buddies that were police officers. Well, how did you get close with police officers? It started out, I had an uncle that was, uh, uh, he was high command on... Uh, on the Fort Wayne Police Department, mm-hmm. and so these officers knew me when I was at school mm-hmm. and everything. And when I was in high school, hell, they were all like big brothers to me, mm-hmm. and uh, it just stayed that way. But anyway, the thing about putting up the signs and everything, uh-huh. these guys would put up signs where it was not supposed to be signs, and several times they were stopped by police. And when they saw, when the police saw who the signs were, the police let them go and <laughs> left them. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's terrible to even admit that. Ah, <laughs> but anyway, that's when I first got to meet and know Dan Quayle. Okay. And uh, Dan was running for Congress. And you and were for county council. County council, Allen County Council. Okay, Allen. And the day after the elections in November. The party always has a thing on that Wednesday, and then they describe what happened in the elections. And I could still remember when somebody asked Orvis Spears, how is it possible that two unknowns, Quayle and Weiss, both got elected? And Orvis Spears' answer was, because once they started, they never stopped. And that was, and I, that was so cool. Yeah. Orvis Beers, he was one of the kingpins of uh-huh. Indiana Party, and uh, that was 76. Wow. 
So I did that for uh, eight and a half years. And Vice President George H.W. Bush came to Fort Wayne in May of 85. And I went out there with the sheriff, Dan Fiegel, and my two daughters. And we're standing in line and we're shaking hands with George Bush, which really came to here the last couple of weeks. You know, your memory, how it goes yeah. like it. Of course, the girls didn't remember it. And I'm thinking, of course, they were, they were little, I guess. Then, yeah. But. And uh, uh, one of the, uh, Alan McMahon, who was on the Central Committee, come up and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, and so I asked Dan if he'd watch the girls, and I walked over, and Alan said, we just found out today that, uh, uh, oh my God, the guy that re I replaced, Elmer McDonald, is going to die. He has cancer, and it's terminal, and he's going to die, and Orvis wants me to find out if GE will let you run for the job. And I thought, wow, you know, and I said, okay. So the next day I went into GE and I talked to one of the big managers there about it. And he said, well, we'll have to get permission. Well, I was all excited, you know, geez, what am I gonna get to run, you know? And I didn't hear anything, I didn't hear anything. And I happened to be talking to Dick Dormer Dick Dormer was the chairman of the uh, board, um, actually owned it, Summit Bank here in Fort Wayne. And he had known me through JC's. And I, he said, Tommy, he said, we always need good marketing people in this bank. He said, if GE says no, he said, I'll hire you. And that was lifting a weight off of me like you, I, and it was, you know, you hear people say that about lifting the weight off your shoulders. That's a reality. It's a truth. And I went home and I, or I, I guess I called Shirley. And uh, that was my lay wife. And, uh, oh, well, then okay. Because that was the thing, you know, about your job. You yeah. Know? And. Uh, so at that point you were like, you really wanted to run. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I used to tease Elmer all the time. But Elmer, why don't you retire and let me take over your job? And then when he got when he got sick, mm -hmm. in fact, have you ever heard of the Indiana Society of Chicago? Yes. Okay, used to go to that every year, and at that event, which would have been December of '84, Elmer and Herlene were in Chicago at that, and that's one of the times when I went up to him and we were at a luncheon or something, and I said, Elmer. I said, don't forget, I said, you know, you're going to retire. And then the next, you know, six months later, the guy had, was terminally ill. So anyway, that's when another time in my life of total embarrassment, I was instructed, you've got to get with every precinct committee person. You've got to talk to them. You've got to get their confidence. You've got to get them to commit to you. And I was doing it while Elmer was still alive. And I'll tell you, that bothered me for so long. I mean, it's a reality of what you're supposed to do and everything else, but it just bothered me the man was still, still alive. 
As it turned out, for my campaign, you know who my campaign chairman was? Herlene McDonald, Elmer's wife. She was the one. Now, the special caucus. Gordon Durnell was the chairman of the party at that time. And Gordon come up here and Gordon said, well, Tom, Orvis says you need 29 votes tonight to win. And I'm sitting there and I had 38 committed. And I'm looking around the room, they're all there. And I'm thinking, this is, and I got my wife there. You know, I don't think the kids were there. My wife was there, though. And uh, the first vote, I had, I think it was either 22 or 23. And that was my first time to understand when somebody commits to you, it doesn't mean anything with a lot of people. And that's something that it reinforced because I always, it was always very strong with me. My word is my word. And which is what's so important about being in the legislature. It doesn't matter your politics or your, you know, you can be, but what is your word on the, you're gonna support it or you're not? If you, you know, you can walk away from it. That's how you make friends down there, people that you trust that yeah. way. And I had 22 or 23 and it was like, why? And uh, that running that year was Tom Weiss, Bob Alderman, who was a, was a uh, rep, Gloria Gagline, who was a auditor at that time, and uh, Jim Hunt, who was a previous uh, rep. Well, the first thing, Jim Hunt got defeated on the first ballot, so that was the second ballot, and, and I, I don't remember what it was on the second ballot, but I, but I was still in it in the second ballot, and uh, Gloria went out then. On the third ballot, it was Alderman and myself, and I won. But it was, you talk about, talk about, when I had 38 precinct committee people committed to me, and of course, you know what was funny after I won? Just about every one of those 38 told me how they voted for me. <laughs> You're like, well, that's strange. Yeah. So, uh, kind of woke you up to the reality of how, how it works. Yeah, but you know, there are lessons learned, like you, like you say, there are lessons learned. And that was, my, that was my lesson about when somebody commits something to you, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. So, but you can't I think that's where, I think that's what, Ronald Reagan meant by trust but verify. <laughs> That's, yeah. That must be exactly what his, uh -huh. and that was. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, you mentioned your wife several times, and I think you maybe even said when you got married, um, but where did you meet your wife? Met my wife. Uh, if you've ever seen the uh, movie... Uh, as hell when you get old. Uh, American Graffiti? I haven't seen it, but yes, I'm familiar. You want to see that because that was our life. And that was, we had a multitude of drive-in restaurants. Mm -hmm. We had Azars, we had Halls, 
we had gardeners, and we had Dale's drive-in. So what you did in high school, once you had a car, is you drove, now Hall's was the south side one. Dale's was the, uh, uh, was the Elmhurst kids. Uh, Azar's, uh, I don't know who Azar's was, and Gardner's was everybody's. But you would make that loop. You just do that all night long. And I can still remember, I was dating a young girl, and I pulled into Gardner's, and I looked, and there was her brother in the car, and there were two girls in the car with him, one in the front seat, one in the back. And he motioned for me to come, so I went out of the Gardner's and around to Western Auto parking lot, parked, came walking back here, got in the back seat, and there was this Shirley Pabst sitting there. And in the front was her, her girlfriend who was dating Jerry, the, the girl I was dating, brother. And I can still remember that night vividly. I can remember the coat she had on. I can remember her eyes. And the funniest part of all of it is she does not remember any of that. So anyway, I don't know how long it was after that. I, I asked her out or something like that. But anyway, we started dating. So that would have been in 62. Uh, Were I, you still in high school? or? What no, no, no. She graduated the same year I did. She graduated from New Haven High School. You said I graduated 60? from Southside. Okay. 60. 60. Okay, so this a couple years after. But uh, so we dated and fought and dated and fought and dated and fought and all of those things. And my story about, and, uh, but anyway, so we got married in uh, January 16th of 1965. And uh, in um, 92, we had two daughters. And when were your daughters? Born? I'll show you the pictures up yeah. here. And uh, then in 1992, she got breast cancer. And uh, she was clear for 14 years. She had a bad dose. I can still remember the doctor coming in. And uh, he had told us that they had taken out... Uh, I can't remember now if it was nine or eleven lymph nodes. Oh my goodness! It was eleven because at the time when he told how many he had taken out, I said, "Well, now what's considered bad?" He said, "Well, he says anything three or more." And on that Monday, she had the surgery on Friday. And on that Monday, he come in there, and I thought he was coming in to tell us she was dying. The, the expression on his face. And it was in nine. So she ended up having, you know, doing the full, well, she had the, it was just the one side. She had mastectomy and then reconstruction. And then she had chemotherapy. And uh, she was clear for 14 years. But they used to call her their walking miracle. And uh, she hated that down there. They'd call her that. And then in, uh, 2006, it came back, came back with a vengeance, and she died in 2008. She died in 2008. Anyway, 
Those are my grandkids, by the way. The, uh, the three on the top, uh, the boy is 14, 13 months less is that one there, the little girl. Then Charlie is five, and he was not an accident. They actually planned one after that many years. That is curly hairs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the bottom two is Sophie is 14, mm -hmm. and Maddie, the one on this side, who looks older, is 12. And then up here, let's see, that's Sophie and Maddie there uh -huh. too, they're my elephants. There are my two girls, I don't know how old they were in that picture. This is my wife in the blue, and this uh -huh. is her sisters. This is the lady that I date now. Uh -huh. No, she was at the Armiga meeting, is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah that's Jane. Jane, that's Jane, that's a little Sophie. This is Shirley. And the girls. Now this would have been, I think, I think this was, uh, this must have been my uh, 90 election, I think. Now when were your daughters born? Uh, Tammy was born in 71 and Angie was born in 74. Okay. So, and there's, now, what, one of the cute things here, it says, Ayaya Abba, uh -huh. that's Sophie, who used to say, Ayaya, for I love you. <laughs> but the Abba part of it was, when she was, oh, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two at the most. But she came in, I ended up after Shirley had her uh, start her chemo, she would get real sick. And so I ended up getting a, renting a place, and then eventually I ended up buying a condo, and then we ended up restoring. I restored three homes down there. Oh I did. I wrote checks. Yeah. <laughs> Shirley and Tammy worked on them. But the uh, anyway, I was sitting in, in the uh, the home on Thirty Third Street, and Sophie. They opened the front door and Sophie come running in there to Papa, you know, and give, him, give me a kiss. And she goes, Abba? Abba? Like that. And that was the first that we understood that Abba was Grandma. Yeah. And that's what the grandkids <laughs> still call oh. Shirley as Abba. Yeah. And Abba in Hebrew is, uh, I didn't know that, is, what is it, Father? Or, I think it's Father. That's funny. Just came to that on so, her own, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, we were only married 40, what, 43 uh, years, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 43 years. And did Shirley have a career? Or no, she... no. She was a stay-at-home mom, and then, you know, when the girls went to school, she worked at one of the, the grocery stores. Mm -hmm. uh, she just worked in the deli area, mm -hmm. and that was her... <laughs> all the deputies, and of course I knew them all from when I was on county council. That they always used to go in, and, and that even today they'll have a, they have a retirement thing once a year, and I go to it, and they'll always talk about Shirley, how they go in and shoot the bull with her. And everything. <laughs> but she was totally apolitical. She just, you know, it was not her thing. 
And I can still remember in 92, uh, we went to DC for a conference and Quayle had set it up. We had a private viewing of the White House by a Secret Service agent. And we went places where they told us later that they don't normally take mm -hmm. visitors in these areas. And we come out of there and I said, you don't deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> But she just, uh, she just was not, that's why in 91 and 92, the RNC was trying to get me to run for Congress. I didn't want anything to do with Congress, but if I'd ever said that I was going to try to run, my wife would have divorced me. I just didn't, I, even at that time, uh, they eat their own out there. Mm -hmm. And I did, that just wasn't my kind of politics. Sure. So. Well, would you say that, serving in the legislature, how did that affect your family? Well, <laughs> Sophie, when she was, uh, in 1987, Sophie was a freshman at Bishop Dwenger High School. And Tom Weiss's legislation that year, one of them, was to color code the background on the driver's license. And I got that from in fact, that was the first thing I ever did dealing with alcohol. And I got it from the Bishop Dwinger, would have been the Bishop Dwinger class of 86, I guess. Their sad chapter came to me with a project in late 85, which was the first, you know, I still hadn't been in the session. Well, I, I take that back, it would have been 86 was my first session, so it would have been after that. So it must have been the class of, anyway. And you said Sophie, but do you mean Tammy or? Uh, I mean Tammy, God. <laughs> Bless your heart. Okay. I call her Tammy. I call, I call Tammy Kathy, who is my sister. I call my sister Kath, Tammy. Uh, yes. Tammy was a, a freshman, but I'm trying to give you the background of yeah. this thing because it's so funny. Because so anyway, I go before this sad chapter, and they're all excited, and they have this color coding of the as the way to stop underage drinking. And I'm thinking this is a great idea. So I promised them I'd do legislation. So that was '87. Must have been '87 that I did it. And Tammy was a freshman, and Tammy was going nuts because all the kids will hate me, Dad, they'll all hate me. And I said, well, that's too bad, Tammy, because it's a good idea and it's going to save lives and all this stuff. Well, Governor Orr decided that rather than go through all the mess of, of that, he said, Tommy, if you don't, just don't do it, I'll do it by executive order. And in fact, what he did was he come up here to Bishop Dwinger High School and uh, and announced that he was going to do it. And <laughs> Tammy was in the stands, and he and they had kids, and I mean, you know, the bishop was there. Ever it was a and and uh, Governor Orr says, and I'll bet you that that young girl sitting right up there is really proud of her dad for coming up with this idea. And Tammy's wanting to crawl. Oh. 
Oh, God, it was so funny. <laughs> anyway, the kids didn't hate her for it. Some of her friends hated me later for legislation that I did later, and we'll get to that later, I guess. Too. Okay. <laughs> um, so would Shirley come down with you when you were in session and things she like did, that? Yeah, she would come down, and, and for, a, for the first several years, she was, uh, she was uh, involved with the, uh, the uh, women's groups and that. Uh, I think what happened with Shirley is Shirley was a was kind of a she was kind of shy too but which is funny to say for me opposite tract yeah. and uh, but she made friends with several wives down there and uh, believe it or not the two that she made friends with their spouses died one died in uh, one died in uh, 89, and when did Bob die? He might have died in 88. But she was friends with their wives. And that kind of just separated her out from really wanting to be involved. And uh, one was Orville Moody from Angola, his wife. God, that was a, that a horrible one. Uh, but I often wondered, I never said anything about it, but she would go and, you know, but she just wasn't really that, you know. And it never, it never, it never, she was proud of me, but it never impressed her that I was a senator. Does that sound funny? No. She just, I mean, it wasn't, yeah. it, it just wasn't the, she was proud of what I did and everything like that, but hey, you know, it's Tom Weiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, let's jump into sort of your political development then, and then getting into county council. What was it like when you were first getting involved in county government? Well, uh, I, uh, whenever I did anything, I always jumped in. Mm -hmm. Like what I said with JC's. You wouldn't have believed what I did in JC, how much I did. I mean, it was, I just loved it. And I did the same thing with government. But I always thought, you know, if you don't really know what people are doing, how the hell do you legislate on them? Or, and I used to, and it's funny today how many people I have that are friends that were staff in the county. But I would go into their offices and I'd say, you know, and I, I wasn't just talking to the manager or the department head. I go to the people, what do you do? What's your job? And what are your problems that you face? And, you know, I would do that. I would spend the time. And I, I used to ride with the, the deputies. I used to ride with the highway department guys. I wanted to know, what do you face on your job on a daily basis? And I found out people really appreciate you knowing what they do and you considering them important part of, you know, not just, mm -hmm. you know, some people uh, you're, you know, I pay your wages, you know, how they are about stuff like that. So I, uh, I really got involved and I, I, I just, uh, you know, I made sure that what I was doing was, I always thought was, I never, the only, the only 
thing I ever did in my career where I ever was sorry the vote that I did was I voted for the Fort Wayne School Board to be elected, which is what I did in the Senate. I'm jumping ahead of you. But when I say that, and the, only, and the reason is, is because the people that run for that are not people really dedicated to education. They got issues that they want to, yeah. and you know, they get, and you can't believe some of the side issues that, you know, but that was the only, but anyway, so I, uh, I just got involved in all of this stuff. I, I made sure that uh, it wasn't just a once a month thing, you know, for council meetings. And uh, I visited the offices. I worked with. Uh, I worked on the the pay part of it. I can still remember that. I was very heavily involved in that, getting the, making sure that the, you know, uh, equal pay for equal work, that kind of stuff. I believe in that. Um, and when I say that, I I mean it's. I, I was always very strongly supportive of, of uh, making sure that, and I, I used to say it was because I grew up in a household with women, you know, here, <laughs> I had a, even my dog was female, but you know, to making sure that it was, and, and when I say that, when I say equal pay for equal work, I don't, I mean, it's hard to compare a secretary's work with a police officer or something like that, but what I'm saying is, you, you come up with comparable work is comparable pay. That's what I that's what I was always supportive of. I can remember working with the guys that were where we bring in outside help to work on the wages and the structuring and everything like that. Because it was more than just everybody gets two percent increase. You know, what's your job and what's it related to and what's it needs. So I got heavily involved in that. Uh, I got heavily involved with uh, the health department. Um, we had some people that were on county council that I remember when uh, we were dealing with these sexually transmitted diseases and this woman made a comment and she said she didn't want to give them money and she said let those with sin live with their sin. She said that publicly. And I couldn't believe what she said. And uh, as a part of that story, I can remember going down to visit with the doctor that ran that department. And he brings me through a room and there's all these people sitting there waiting to be seen. Can you imagine that? And, and I knew what they were there for. They, oh my God, I thought, why would he ever bring me through that area? Poor people. But I was very supportive of that. So the health department, they loved me. Yeah, that was, uh, but we had, a, in fact, when we were talking about politics, I mean, conservatism before, the woman that I was talking about is ultra conservative, and then there was a guy that was an ultra conservative on there too. And they just, they gave the, the word bad name. <laughs> And how, um, how long were the terms for county council? Four years. Four years. Four years. So I got elected, uh, actually I got elected three times and then I uh, cut short the one when I went into the, into the Senate. So I went, I ran in 76, no I didn't, I run, 
Yeah, 76 and in and 80 and then 84. And then in 85 is when I went into the... But uh, uh, I served on, you know, in addition to that, I was on the... I was the chair of the Urban Transportation Advisory Board. Geez, what else did I do when I was on there? But I just, I just thoroughly... I was, I, to this day, you know, I ended up doing a bunch of scholarships out here at Purdue. And giving back to your community, that was always, to me, I was always so excited about what my community had done for me. I got my education here, I had my job here, I got my family here, and it was a matter of giving back. And there's so much satisfaction to doing that there's so much satisfaction to doing something where you, where you think to yourself, you know, I'm doing something somebody else either can't or won't. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was a personal satisfaction. And that, mm -hmm. That's, uh, I don't know, yeah. I've, I've done that my whole time. Yeah, you've certainly been busy, that's for sure. Well, yeah, and I still, that's like I said though, I don't understand where my time is now, what do I do? <laughs> I must sit around a lot. I think you, you've earned that, certainly. Um, well, as you're getting starting to get more involved in county politics and then even state politics and more familiar with sort of Republican politics too, who were your political heroes, either nationally or even locally? I mean, you've mentioned several names. Well, my first election was in 1964, and I voted for Lyndon Johnson for president. Mm -hmm because I thought Barry Goldwater and I, I was a, I watched the commercials on the bomb and all that other stuff. Isn't that crazy? That's, that was my first election. In 1968, I got teased by people because I handed out campaign material for Birch Bayh for U.S. Senate and Richard Nixon for president. I told, I told Evan this story one time, Evan Bayh. He thought that was funny. Yeah. But the reason I did is I thought both of them were right with what they were saying and what they were doing. And I was an admirer of Birch Bayh's. And, and uh, so I was a big Nixon supporter. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, I, you know, he was going to end the war, which, I mean, I was supportive because I was a, you know, I was in the military. And so I, you know, my commander in chief and all that kind of stuff. But he's going to end the war, which he didn't do uh, <clears throat> until very late. But anyway, I so you know he started getting involved in that. In '76, I got uh, enthralled. If is that a good word, enthralled with uh, with Ronald Reagan? I thought this guy really has has it together with what he's saying and everything. And I had nothing against Gerald Ford. But I, and that's the year I was going to run. Well, Orvis knew that I was supporting him, and he did not like part of it, even though I was running and he liked me. And mm -hmm. I don't know if he liked me at that time, and I shouldn't say that, but uh, he kept saying, Gerald Ford's our president. And I said, I just, and I was going to do campaign for Reagan and all this stuff. So I didn't because I ran for election like that. But. Uh, Reagan is the guy that really, I think, 
you know, it's like I said, I, I was, an, I was, you know, I had met Agnew and all of this kind of stuff, and I think that was a part of the, the you know, I was leaning Republican, but, um, and I guess I was, you know, when I talked values, you know, Agnew used to talk values, which we found out he didn't have <laughs> after the fact. Uh, but uh, Reagan is the guy that really got me to thinking about, you know, what, and as far as politically too, and without jumping around all over the place, you know, John Kennedy, I worship John Kennedy. I thought the man was, and I don't know whether it's because he wasn't the age of my grandpa, he was the age of my dad, or, you know, he wasn't yeah. really, my dad was older, but I mean, it was that age group. Yeah. But uh, I thought, I always liked that, ask not what you can, country can do for you, that's what you can do for your country. I always liked that. But, uh, so Reagan was the one that really, I think, inspired me. Uh, and uh, then, of course, in 80, you know, that was no question on, on that kind of a thing. But, but uh, what did, where were what, Yeah, I was just asking national political heroes or even state yeah, or local. Reagan so. was, mm -hmm. I liked Jack Kemp. Because I thought, and I liked I liked Quayle a lot. I always thought Quayle was Quayle was underrated and uh, and overreacted to by the media. And it's kind of what's going on with Trump right now. I mean, Trump's got his problems, and he's doing some. You know, I don't agree hundred percent. But uh, but I always thought Dan Quayle had had the right thing too. Dan was willing to work with. With uh, he was quote a conservative. He and Ted Kennedy worked together on a lot of legislation. That, but Kemp was where I got the term of compassionate conservative. Uh, he had ideas, and even even though you know you could say he was conservative, he thought about those less fortunate, mm -hmm. and. Uh, um, you know, that's, that's, I, I really, in fact, when he, what was it, he ran in 96, I guess. He ran as vice president under Dole. And boy, I was excited about Kemp, but that never came to be either, I guess. But uh, Kemp was one, uh, let's see, Dan Coates. Dan Coates, I, I still worship. Do you know, last night, I went to lunch or to dinner with Jane and Zoram Tazian, who's a local developer here. He was, I God, I don't know how old or, or he must be in late 80s now. He, he came into the restaurant, so we had him sit down with us. And I sent Coach a text and I said, sitting here with Zoram having dinner at Casa's at 9.44 last night, he sent me a text back and said, wish I was there with you. Best wishes to you and Zorum. Coates and I have, and it's so funny that I can text him mm -hmm. and get a response to the director of national intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a guy that, I always thought Dan was that way. Um, I thought he was, quote, the compassionate conservative, but I also thought he had the highest integrity. And you know, when you, when you go through legislation or you do things or whatever else, people remember you 
for different things. You know, I, I just saw a guy at the grocery store and he thanked me for my service and he thanked me about the drinking and driving legislation. God, it's been 17 years ago that I... But what I always was hopeful is that people would say he had high integrity. And that's, I, I used to tell Dan that, Coates, I'd say, if I could just remember to have the integrity that people think of you as having, I said, that's what I'll be, oh, Tom, you know, no, I'm serious. Did you feel like that idea of compassionate conservatism sort of drove how you push legislation or how issues, you know, was that something that you wanted to embody as well? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I served on the finance committee and I never forgot what it was like when I was little. And I never forgot what it was like for my parents before I was born. And so do I want people that abuse the system? No. And I, you know, do whatever you can to stop them, you know, mm -hmm. enforce the law or whatever else. But, but to not want to help people in need is something that, you know, I, 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 I can still remember when I, uh, there were people that were fascinated with me in, in the 91, and this is something I would like you to, I'll tell you, you can remember it, but <laughs> okay. I just, only because it's. Okay, we're good to go there, so. Um, you know, the first election, I know that was special caucus and you're replacing Elmer McDonald. Um, but in the subsequent ones, you know, did you have a particular campaign strategy or how would you approach sort of each re-election? You know, it's, uh, it's funny because you, uh, you know, you have to do the signage, you have to put together groups that are going to, to help you run and everything. And, uh, the first, the my first election was in '86 was kind of tough because I mentioned uh, Gloria Gagland was the auditor that got defeated in the in the caucus. Well, she ran. She decided she was going to run against me in the primary, and uh, so you know that that made a little bit of a difference too. And I defeated her, but uh, uh, the elections of '86. 90 uh, were relatively easy because I had a pretty strong district. I mean, you still have to do everything, but you know, you put together a team and everything like that. My biggest election came in 94. And that was after I took over the inner city and uh, uh, there was a, I was running against a very populist city councilwoman and so we were really going to have to and we really put together a big i forget what i spent in that campaign but you know of course you get donations and everything like that but i had a wonderful team in fact uh, uh, a guy that i had met in 93 became my finance uh, uh, chairman in uh, 94 and uh, ended up becoming my best friend and that he just passed away. It would be two years coming up here, I guess, next, in April or March. But uh, 
that was the biggest election. And I mean, it takes a lot of uh, takes a lot of effort. You have, you know, you're doing the walks and you're doing the signage and you're going to events. And early on, uh, there were a lot of things. They had the League of Women Voters. They were pretty active up here, and they kind of they kind of went away in the. I don't even remember them being involved in the '90s. But you, uh, you have a lot of things that you have to attend, the churches and stuff like that, speaking engagements. And, but uh, the, uh, in starting, in the, starting in the 90s is when I really got heavily involved in the, in the anti-drinking and driving. And that, that became a, a, a big thing where I got a lot of statewide attention on that. And, uh, in fact, I got a lot of national attention that the uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and, and those groups got, uh, got involved with me. And, and so, uh, of course, that helps, you know, that's under, uh, what, what's the term we used at? Uh, it's uh, free media is my, oh. you know, that kind of stuff like that. But, but uh, the campaigning, though, the walking, I, I never did as much as a lot of candidates uh, do today where they go house to house. Mm-hmm. I do it in different precincts and stuff like that, but not not for the whole. I remember Luke Kenley, geez, I forget how many thousand homes he visited in one of his elections. Of course, I was there too with him. I went to a bunch of them, but not, not as many as Luke went to. But, uh, yeah, the campaigning, the Getting the money, that's the part that's really the... In fact, that's one of the things I can still remember what Dan Coates was telling me one time. How many thousand dollars a week he had to get in donations as a senator. It was phenomenal. It's, I mean, it's sad. It really is sad. But it's the only way you can get your... You know, you can get the word out and everything, you know, unless you got money like like Trump had, he can for his <laughs> <Yeah>. own. <laughs> well, then, jumping into that first, you know, you, you win uh, the caucus, what did you find or, or what were you thinking as you walked into the state house that first day? Uh, well, interesting about my first day at the, in the legislature in 1976, I couldn't see the scoreboard. And the reason I couldn't is that morning I had laser surgery on both my eyes for glaucoma and I was, they were still dilated and I couldn't even. <laughs> that was my first day in the General Assembly. And, this, and just to, to clarify for the record, that was also a Senate position, right? That was my Senate, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So like 85, 85 or 86? Well, that was eighty. The the January of eighty six. Okay. Is when I is when I had that surgery. So, my first day and actually, well, the first day would have been actually would have been eighty five. It would have been organization day. Yeah. But and actually, uh, <laughs> so you couldn't see a whole lot then. Well, organization day, I was okay for that. One. Yeah. But I couldn't on the first day of second. <laughs> but organization day, no, I it was it was remarkable. Uh, uh, you know, to say you're not proud is, 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 uh, it, you know, you'd be lying to say that. But it was, 
in September of 85 is when I was sworn in by Judge Givens. And of course I had my mom and my dad, my wife, my daughters, my sister and her husband, Dan Fiegel, I keep mentioning him, he was the sheriff here in Allen County at that time, my nieces and nephews, and and it was it was an unbelievable experience just to to be in that in that chamber and uh, be sworn in and to to know that uh, you know you were doing something that very few people ever got the opportunity to do even to this day I mean you know I don't know how many <coughs> senators there have been in the state of Indiana but just to say that you were one of them is yeah. you know is something like that but. Uh, but it was uh, the uh, couple of day within a couple of days of when I was a the caucus. Going back to that, I remember getting a call from the then coroner, who was Phil O'Shaughnessy, who was a dentist, and he wanted to take me to lunch. And uh, and he also had my dentist with him, and so we went to lunch. And what they wanted to talk to me about was legislation. <laughs> I'd only been a couple of days and they wanted me to introduce them. It turned out to be the first piece of legislation that I did in the General Assembly. Got, a, got you know, and got through the General Assembly. Well, I had but, noticed that you had a lot of dent, like bills related to dentistry. Was it from them? That or? was from Phil O'Shaughnessy, who was a dear friend and uh, uh, the dental, I got it. At first, I was on the uh, health committee. The first, I don't know how many years, first three or four years, I guess, I was on the health committee. And so uh, I, I got, and of course, with the dentist, you know, I was my own dentist. Uh, the, the, I got an award from the Dental Society from a dentist. They named the thing the Norwin Niles. Norman Niles Award, and he was a dentist of mine years before, and it was kind of funny that I got that award named after that former dentist. But uh, anyway, so I knew a lot of them, and then I served on that committee, and then I knew a lot of doctors in that around the town, and so I was uh, very close with that those both those communities. I did a lot of legislation. Um, I I did legislation for the. Uh, Guy that used to be the chief uh, pathologist for for uh, for uh, Parkview Hospital, and that was that was some legislation that got real controversial, and it had to do with the AIDS legislation. But what it amounted to, and I can't remember all of the details, but it meant about what the doctors should be doing and everything else. And I got fought by the gay community who thought it was against them. And it wasn't. It was a health thing. It was a health. And what was so interesting about it, um, that legislation was eventually done by Pat Miller, who is the health uh, chair. And it was probably uh, probably at least 15 years later. And what it did was, it was a benefit for those patients with AIDS 
that could have been accomplished 15 years earlier. So it's just a misunderstanding of the intent of the, the intent legislation. and everything else. Yeah, I never tried to do it after that first time. They did protests on me down there. Oh, it was, I had protests done on me twice on that issue and then on the child restraint issue. And uh, that was the other one. But it was neither one of them that it was, you know, when you can't, when you can't, it's not a matter of not explaining, it's a matter of having someone understand what you're trying to do. I was never against it. I mean, you know, I, that was, a, you know, it, that was a sad, sad commentary when you think how many people died for, because something that takes so long. To, yeah. I'll give you another example of that too. I did the, I did the uh, legislation on DNA upon arrest and couldn't get a hearing on it. I did, I had legislation on familiar DNA. Mm -hmm. Do you know what that is? That's where if they get your DNA and through your DNA, they can, they know a family member was involved in a crime. It gives them another way to, that's how we just solved that April Tinsley murder case up here, 30 years old with familiar DNA. They're now talking about it. Wow. I'm just, I was ahead of my time in so many of the areas. <laughs> and it sounds weird to say that. It sounds, I'm not patting myself. I'm just saying, I, I think, God, if I could have only explained it better or mm -hmm. got the right people to, yeah. to understand what I was doing and to push it. But that's, uh, um, well, how did you then learn the ins and outs of state politics? Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, it's tough, but uh, you just start learning the personalities and you start learning the individuals. Uh, you know, I got, uh, of course I was, at first I was working with, uh, with uh, a Republican governor, so that kind of helped me. And then, you know, you, you, you know, Republican people and everything. So that kind of builds from that. And then uh, when Evan was in and when Frank was in O'Bannon, I just, you know, I, I stayed true to my convictions, but that didn't mean that everything they did was wrong. And I worked with Evan Bayh and I worked with uh, Frank O'Bannon with both of those administrations. And I... I had I had a lot of friends in the Democrat side too, but you you know it, it evolves uh, when you're when you're dealing it. Not everything is political. Uh, that's why it's so funny when when people, it, at least on the state level, when you look at the number of bills that pass that are really bipartisan, it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a even to somebody that was involved in the process. Sometimes you hear those numbers and go, man, that many. Or how many are unanimous? How many are 50 to nothing? Right. They're in the Senate anyway. So, but you, you learn the personalities, but it's, uh, and I have, uh, it's kind of funny when I look back on, especially on Evans, uh, on Evans people, a lot of his staffers were, are friends of mine today. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeff Modisette was, in fact, Jeff Modisette was a reason I lost I could have had, uh, well, I was, here's what I was told, and I, I have to be careful how I do this one because I won't say a name, but um, 
1990, I had what was called an omnibus drunk driving bill. A part of that bill was .08. It was just one of the features in there. I got it through the Senate. It went to the House, and it was killed in the House. And I was told later by someone very prominent in leadership, the reason that it was killed is because they didn't want to give any, any uh, that the reason that bill was killed in the House is Jeff Modisette was going to run for prosecutor. Jeff is a Democrat, was going to run for prosecutor in Marion County. He was heavily involved with me on the drunk driving stuff. They did not want to give him uh, any prominence to run for that office. I couldn't believe it. And the person that told that to me, I mean, it, it made me feel bad that my party was doing that. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it was a Republican right. House that, that killed it. And uh, that was in 1990. Wow. Uh, but anyway, um, so, you know, you, you meet people and uh, you, uh, as far as, you know, you, your understanding of, of their, and of course, you know, I worked with Bob Garten, who was probably, I, I still think was one of the finest gentlemen I ever dealt with. I mean, there's a man that had integrity that uh, he was criticized because of his germaneness rule and things like that, but he was exactly right. He was exactly right on the way he did things, and, and uh, but the one of the interesting things about him, just to digress on a personality, uh, Bob read every bill that was presented to the Senate. Every bill I'm talking about at the beginning, and he would send notes to you, and he would say, Tom. In this bill, you got such and such in here. Do you really want to do this or do you really want to do this? And you look at it and you go, that guy, he reads every bill. And uh, he would assign the bills. And the interesting thing, <coughs> when he would assign a bill, if that same bill come up a couple of years later, he would assign it to the same committee, that bill that had similar things to it. He, he His knowledge was... I, can't, I couldn't believe how he could keep it all in his head, you know, how he did that. But there was a guy with a very high integrity. That was a, mm -hmm. And you learn, you learn from these kind of people. Mm -hmm. You learn and you, you hopefully you're picking up all the good stuff and, sure. and uh, forgetting about anything that's not good. Well, did you have any specific political mentors in those early years? Yeah, I think Bob. Mm -hmm. I, I think Bob very much so. Um, Potch Wheeler, uh, Pachi was a, another, it turned out to be a dear friend. Uh, John Sinks, John had decades of, of history before that. Uh, he was the, the senator that preceded David Long. But uh, no, you learn from them. Orvis Beers, when I talked about Orvis, Orvis was a phenomenal political leader. Uh, he was the one that suggested quail to, to Bush. So I, I, I remember when that all happened. I mean, there, you, I don't even know what history does, but I know what happened with, with when Bush was here and talking to, uh, to uh, and Orvis talking to him. Uh, but um, no, you, you learn from them and 
you learn a lot. You learn the, you know, from the county council, you learn the locals. Uh, I always thought county council was an excellent uh, uh, succession to go from council, whether it be city or county, to go to, uh, to the state because you understand the fiscal part of it and you understand, you know, pretty much the legislative part of it. And so that's, uh, you know, like I say, I learned a lot of stuff from, from that there. But uh, mentors, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing when you say that because I, I would say that Orvis was, Bob definitely, Bob definitely was uh, uh, in the Senate like that. We, we become very close friends too over that. So those are those are the two that I would say, are, including Pachi in there, I guess. Sure. Well, I still have a page and a half of questions. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. To, I'm, if no. I'm expanding too much no, no, on no, this No, 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 not at all. I just didn't know if you wanted to take a break or... I'm fine. You're fine? Okay. And just when, when you're ready to have lunch, I'm going to take you to lunch. So do you want to do that first? That's up, to, that's up to you. We could go grab lunch real quick and come back and finish. You or, want to do that? Or? Sure. That's, okay, that let's do fun. that then. We'll do that. Well, I will state for the record again, as these are starting new files, that my name is Michelle Amarino, still December 17th, still interviewing Tom Weiss. Well, let's just jump back in then um, from where we were. How did you know the needs and wants of your constituents? Well, that's what's, uh, and that's from meetings with groups, meetings with people. Uh, you know, sometimes it was something that was on television. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about some of my some of my bills, uh, I did one that was based upon a, a woman that was being, found out she was being filmed. They rented a home and there were cameras set up in there and I about disgusting with, with what this guy did. And I did the law that ended up making it a felony to do that. And similar to that, there was one where there was a little girl up in Ashley, Indiana, where a guy was doing the under the dress photographing yeah. and I made that a felony. Um, I read a story about one time about some people that were wanting to, their child had been murdered and they wanted to go to the execution and the, the gist of the story was they had to get the permission of the person being, being uh, uh, Terminated. <laughs> the prisoner that was going to be uh, killed was going. Had, they had to have his permission, and I thought that's crazy. They've, he's already hurt them once. Now he's. They have to go back and. So I made it a law that they don't have to have the, the prison can. If somebody wants to, well, a family member wants to view the execution, they can. I mean, it sounds screwy to say that, but they were 
those are how they were laws that didn't do anything for me. Yeah. You know, um, the seatbelt law just made sense to me. You know, the drunk driving. I don't want somebody driving drunk. I don't care if you party to you puke. Yeah. You know, at home, but don't get in your car and drive. Sure. Uh, when I was mentioning to you earlier about my daughter and uh, when I was doing the drunk driving stuff, that same daughter, when I did the child restraint system, oh, this one kid called me up, it was a classmate, and he said, I have 10 children. And he said, what am I supposed to do? He said, I can't get 10 car seats in my car. And I said, well, I said, you know, I, said, I don't know what to tell you, and I know it's a problem, but I said, how valuable are your children to you? Well, don't ask me that. Well, I said, well, it is. In, in Indianapolis, <coughs> I was down there one day, and the secretary came over, and she said, I got some woman on here from Fort Wayne. And she said, she's got five grandchildren, and she can only get four car seats in her car. Who does she leave at home? And I said, go back and tell her the one she loves the most. And Maureen said, I can't say that. I said, you tell her or I'll walk over there and say it. And I'm sitting there and I can hear Maureen. Well, I told Senator Weiss and Senator Weiss said, the one you love the most. And all of a sudden, Maureen wasn't talking and all of a sudden, and then finally she said, well, I'm sorry. And she hung up and I said, what'd she say? She was screaming at her, what did he say? What did he say? But those were things that, you know, it wasn't because I had personal interest in it or something. It was something that came up and I thought, geez, that ought to be the law. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get into the trouble about where people, will, you know, I had on the seatbelt thing. I fought for this country for my rights, and you're taking my rights away that I, that I have to now wear a seatbelt. And ah, come on. I'd like to know. I had the head of national traffic safety. I got real close with those people during the years when I was doing all that stuff, and they kept telling me, because I was telling them how how it's disappointing to hear those guys. They said, "Did you ever stop to think how many lives you saved?" And I said, "You know, I said that's something that really." does absolutely go and counter that. But at the same time, you know, you, you hear this, you go, oh, give up. Oh, it's, it's easy to focus on the negative when it's so loud too, you know. Well, it's, I mean, people today, they accept the seat belts, they accept the child restraints, they, you know. I remember my own daughters, what I used to do with them when they were little. And, and it might've been you too. You laid them in the back seat. If you had a station wagon, you laid them in the back on a mattress, you know, and you just, you were just, if you didn't have a tragedy, you were so fortunate, mm -hmm. so fortunate. Yeah, that's true. Well, how did you communicate and interact with your constituents? Did you have town hall meetings? Did you have a newsletter? Well, did I did newsletters. Uh, I spoke at a lot of uh, a lot of things when I'd be requested to speak, I spoke it. You know, whether it was Kiwanis or I spoke to a lot of different Kiwana groups, uh, Kiwanis. Uh, you know, you you just uh, 
you just make yourself available because that's what people expect you to and and communication with letters um, it depends a lot of times there were form letters for form letters that came to me form letters went back if someone wrote to me excuse me specifically um, I did one of two things I either wrote them a letter back or I called them I did that a lot I would call people and I would call people that were giving me hell. I would call people giving me thanks. Mm -hmm. I would thank them. I'd thank the other person. I'd say, you know, here was my perspective on it. And I understand you don't agree with me. And I understand what you're saying. It's like when, when I was doing daylight savings time. The first time when it didn't pass, you should have seen that. Oh, that I get phone calls and hate mail. And, my wife kept telling me, why do you do these controversial things? <laughs> and I, but I'd tell him, you know, remember this old guy? Do you know how many phones I, or, you know how many clocks I have in my house? I said, I got the same number of clocks, you know? But it's for the best, it's for yeah. economy and people don't. But again, sometimes you can't explain it out or at least to their satisfaction. Sure. Do, were people surprised when you would call them back? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, especially the ones that sent me 80, 80 letters. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I remember some old guy, I, I just can't believe you're calling me back. I just can't believe you're calling me back. And I said, well, you thought it was important enough to write me. And I said, rather than try to explain it, I thought I'd better verbalize it so that you could ask me questions. Well, I just can't believe you're doing this. I really appreciate this. And I said, well, I'm glad you do. But I always wondered if he ever voted for me. <laughs> he probably, when it come time for election, he probably thought, well, I didn't go to vote yeah. for him anyway. So. But that was kind of cute there. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I saved some of my hate mail letters. Wow, okay. I, I, <laughs> I don't review them a lot. Yeah. But <laughs> Were mostly people upset over issues or just like wild things or... Oh yeah, seatbelt. That was that was phenomenal. The drinking and driving. You know, you're gonna you're gonna make me a criminal for if I drink one drink. Well, they never understood it. And after you explained it, how much they had to drink. Well, I can't believe that. And I said, and I remember one time where I did a thing with uh, it was either four or five attorneys who represent drunk drivers. And we did it in conjunction with a radio station at that time. I don't even know if it's still going. It was called WGL. And uh, we did the thing where we had the alcohol. They had their secretaries there. And then we measured them. We had uh, police officers there that used breathalyzers only. Not breathalyzers, but the uh, PBTs, they call them. Personal breathalyzer tests. And they were, they were fascinated. Uh, they would get to like 0.03 and they were dizzy. Or they would get to 0.04 and they would say, there's no way I can drive. And they would, and when you tell them what they were, they were shocked. And these were attorneys. And it was funny because I, I can still remember saying, oh, how many of you guys are gonna change your, change your clientele now? No, they all laughed about that. They thought that was funny because they're gonna still, you know, they're making a lot of money. We used to say back then that if you get caught for a drunk driving offense, it's gonna cost you $10,000. And that's with your fine, 
your insurance costs and all those other things that are associated with it. And yet people still got, I don't know what it is today. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, I'd get, uh, or they'd misunderstand. I had a woman that, uh, I've always been very strong pro-life. And, uh, you know, as much as I love kids, I, I can't be any, I was that way before I was in government. I was strong pro-life. And uh, I, had, uh, I had a woman call me one time and, and there was a, a pro-life issue, but I thought it was, a, it was a, a, a major push more than what really needed to be done. And I, she wanted to know why I wasn't supporting it. And I told her, and she told me, she said, when you go to Indianapolis, that ought to be the only thing you think about. And I said, well, I'm sorry, ma'am. I said, there's a lot of other things that I have to worry about. And I said, this is an issue that I, I really can't support. So I know I lost her vote. But some people, you know, they're single issue. It's like when I was talking about school board. And sometimes the single issue that they have is not conducive to, you know, yeah. sure is certainly not or compromisable. Right. You know, right. and, uh, but yeah, everybody's got their opinion. I have my opinions on stuff too. Yeah. I wonder why some legislators, I wonder why legislators fought the issues that I did. Um, I had people that were on my own committee that I knew why they didn't. They were, they were fed every night by the liquor lobbyists. Mm -hmm. Every night. So. I think you mentioned this earlier. I think it was the dentist bill. But do you remember the first bill that you sponsored? Yeah. Was that the one sure you were do. talking about earlier? Yeah. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that. The first bill that I sponsored had to do with the fact that the did a dentist office, all of the different equipment that they had that dealt with radiation or anything, you know, the, what they take the pictures with and all of this stuff, they would have maybe three or four different pieces of equipment in their office that they would have to be inspected at different times. And, and it was crazy because you know, why wouldn't you come in and inspect all of them at the same time and if you had to do it a year later, you know, and, and so that was the law that I passed that it would establish this thing to be a specific time for all of them at one time. And uh, uh, it made sense to me, you know, and apparently it did down there, so. But the dentists were all happy about that because they didn't have a safety inspector or whatever the inspectors were that come in that would come in and disrupt, you know, several times a year. Yeah. So that was a <laughs> very, you know, that really set, <laughs> did a tremendous job for the, at least for the dentist that did. Yeah. And is that how that bill came to your attention by meeting those? The Phil O'Shaughnessy and, and Jim Fry, my dentist and, and the coroner who happened to be a, uh, a dentist. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the regular interaction amongst assembly members, both formal and informal? Well, yeah, you were constantly dealing with, uh, with other legislators. Uh, uh, in the 90s, um, we become much more closely uh, involved with one another here in the Northeast. And uh, 
that was an interesting thing because we got a lot accomplished by that. And it was bipartisan because we had at least two. I think that's what we had. I think we had two and then another time we had three uh, that were Democrats, the rest of us were Republicans. But when there were issues for Northeast Indiana, we would work together on, on those issues. So yeah, you have a, you have a lot of, and then of course during the summer, you have summer meetings and, and things like that. And then of course you had friendships with, with other legislators. So you'd get together for dinner or something like that. But uh, it was a year long thing. So you, uh, you were really constantly involved and then now today, it's really kind of interesting because with what you have today with the, you know, texting and the phones and cell phones and everything else, uh, you know, I was a lot in common with, or not in common, but I mean a lot in contact with my, my colleagues and that on issues and could be during session or out of session. When you were in session and like on the floor, were interactions more formal or not? Did it just sort of carry over? Well, I don't think they were formal. Mm -hmm. They were not really formal, but uh, yeah, you'd uh, you would be discussing things during debates. Uh, you know, you'd have your caucus sessions and everything, but uh, on the floor, you would uh, you would converse with other legislators about you know uh, about what was going to be debated. Uh, sometimes you would be discussing like, hey, are you going to go talk on this bill or talk against it? Or if you are, what are you going to talk about? You know, you do those kind of things. And you did it both with Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, it was not really a formal type of thing. That leads nicely into my next question, which is what were interactions like between the majority and minority parties, between Republicans and Democrats? It depended. Uh, if they were real dogmatic, you may not have good conversations. And, and that's happened on both sides. I mean, some of, them, uh, some of them really didn't want to give you the time of day, they, you know, and, uh, or they didn't want to discuss, they had their viewpoint or something like mm -hmm. that, but that, that was few and far between. Most, most legislators, and it's really an understanding that a lot of people don't have that, that uh, you know, I think I told you one other time, two of my dearest friends from down there in the, in the General Assembly when I left were the minority leader and the minority caucus chair. Mm -hmm. Dear friends, trusted them immensely and they trusted me the same way. And that's what, that's what governing is all about. I, you can deal with people that, when I said I was pro-life, uh, I don't know whether, I think both of them were probably pro-choice. But that didn't mean I couldn't deal with them. Mm -hmm. You know, we disagreed on a, on a particular issue. That happens. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I didn't like, or I didn't like when people did game playing, and I didn't like when somebody would tell you that they were going to do something or not do something, and then they would do the reverse. Uh, some people, you know, that's, I don't think anything in life is good when you do that. But. Yeah. When you do it in government, the, the problem there is, is you, you know, it's that old story about, you know, screw me once, screw me twice, you know, you just, yeah. you don't forget those kind of things. Sure. And, uh, and that's unfortunate, but. Well, you had told me, 
And if you don't want to mention names, that's fine. But you, you had said that you were close to, to Earlene Rogers before. Who was the other person you were mentioning? Or was she even the one that you were just mentioning? Oh, that I was just mentioning? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, just now that I was... Yeah. Oh, I was close with Earlene, too. But mm -hmm. I, I meant as far as... Uh, that was Tim Lannon and, oh. and Jim Arnold. Oh, okay. And uh, those two guys were... Jim Arnold was on my committee. In fact, poor Jim used to get... His caucus just used to get really upset with him because if he had a bill in my committee, it was heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or he was on the bill with me, or I would give him a bill, to, you know, and, uh, but I, I just, I had total trust in him. Yeah. And uh, I never had to worry about anything like that, so. Would you say that people earned bad reputations if they would go back on their word, or if they couldn't oh, be I trustworthy? Think... Did, were people aware of who? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, you probably had some people that had particular disagreements with another individual, but there were, there were, there were legislators that you just didn't, you just didn't deal with. Mm -hmm. And they could be on your side or they could be on the other side or they could be in the house. Sure. You know, you just, you just learned that over time and I had enough years there that, right. and it used to surprise me how some of them stayed as long as they did that. <laughs> that had that kind of a reputation, but back home they didn't. So. Yeah. Did that it change or evolve over the course of your time in the legislature in terms of how people interacted or the relationship between the two parties? Oh, how, how do you mean? You mean so? I, you know what you're describing. You know that a lot of people were kind of willing to work with each other. Or at least you were able to do that. I guess, was the scenario that you walked into in 1985 the same scenario as when you left in 2014? No, because when I, you know, it's like I was saying in, uh, you know, in, in 85 I was brand new or, you know, to try to understand what, what was going on and, and then uh, later in the 80s, you know, uh, well, in fact, in, I don't know what year that was, when there were only, uh, what were there? There were 26 Republicans and 24 Democrats. That was a very interesting time. I found out that the, that the smaller the majority, the more you work together as a caucus. Learned that very quickly because the more you have in the majority, the more people flake off or they'll, right. well, I can't do that because of this reason or that reason. And those kind of things happen. But, but uh, no, I think that, uh, uh, you know, overall it probably, you know, personalities changed and, and personnel changed, but uh, I think that, as far as the way the system worked and everything, I think it worked pretty close to the same when I started. Okay. Well, what differences, if any, were there between members of the House and the Senate? Well, the House always looked at the Senate as uh, elitists. Uh, the Senate always looked at the House as a raucous bunch of freshmen over there. They would shoot paper clips and do all kind of crazy things and they'd have somebody get up and tell jokes and and they would do things like that and we didn't do that in the Senate. Uh, the Senate always looked at themselves as the as the adults in the room and if you didn't feel that way at the beginning 
it didn't take long before you were forced into feeling that way or else you didn't get anywhere. Uh, but uh, no, I had a lot of friends in the, in, that were in the house too that, that you could work with. And again, it was back to this, this thing about you know trusting them. And, uh, they had a lot harder time because they ran every two years. So they were constantly, constantly, you know, the issues for them were, you know, they could easily get in and out of issues uh, just because they were two-year terms. When you were four years, you had to think about issues longer maybe. But uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a funny thing. But uh, uh, one of the things that, that happened, uh, if you became too, uh, I don't want to say prominent, but if you became too close with issues, a lot of times um, the other party would, uh, I had many times I had bills that I introduced and I'd get them through the Senate, but they would not hear them in, this, in the House. And they would have House bills, the same thing, and they would come over to the Senate and you know, if you believed in the issue, you'd sponsor it or something like that. That's the same thing that happened with the 08. Uh, I got killed on that every year. And in 2001, my bill was not heard in the, in the House. And a freshman's bill came over from the House to me in the Senate. And I did the bill. We got it passed, and the first thing I did after it passed is I went in and I had myself removed from the bill. And so my name is not on the final bill at all. And the reason I did that was if anybody was going to pay any attention to what I did, they were going to understand it wasn't about Tom Weiss and his name on that bill. It was about the issue. And so whether anybody else understood that or not, I did. And that's, that was, it's kind of a funny thing to say that, but that's, that gave me so much satisfaction. Uh, you know, when the, when the National Congress was working on that bill, I was the one that was invited to Washington to speak with, uh, what, God, I can't even think of their names now. Uh, but they were U.S. senators and a congresswoman that were doing the .08 bill. I spoke at Congress, uh, went to the White House, was the first one to be interviewed in the front of the White House. Don't have any pictures of it on my support of it, why it was. It was bipartisan. The president was in total support of it and everything. And then when they actually had the bill signing, I was the only legislator in the United States of America that was there. Wow. And uh, um, so that was my satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to say that. The, yeah. But uh, yeah, when that bill was finally passed, it was. A, and another sad part about it was the only reason that it got through was they were going to be upholding, I forget how many million dollars of federal funds to the state of Indiana. But it got done. Yeah. Right. Well, 
I'm sure you had many different ones over the years, but what was your relationship like with your seatmate, seatmates? Oh, that was good. Uh, again, it had to do with whether it was, uh, you know, if you had any that were had personality clashes with mm -hmm. or anything like that. But basically, my seatmates, Jimmy Merritt sat in front of me, and towards the end, I guess before that, it was Potch Wheeler and Dennis Cruz sat next to me, and Bud Meek sat behind me, and yeah, you have, you know, it's. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I had any difficulty with any of my seatmates. None of them. Can you walk me through the process of generating a bill? What did that look like from you having an idea to it being on the floor or voted on? Well, it was interesting because you had uh, some things were brought to you. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, probably one of the bills that I was the happiest with what came to me in 93 I was at my desk and I still remember John Ryan and Lisa Dietrich who were lobbyists coming to me with a bill that dealt with off-label drugs mm -hmm. and off-label drugs were what they were talking about were an oncologist would have a drug and it was for ovarian cancer but he would notice certain things that he would think you know, I'm going to try this on a breast cancer patient. Mm -hmm. And he would find out, hey, this works. This is giving them, you know. But insurance companies wouldn't pay for it because off-label. And so I'm sitting there, and when they go through all the explanation, I looked at them and I said, you're coming to me because of Shirley, aren't you? Because the year before is when she had hers. And I can still remember John Ryan sitting there and he goes, yeah, we are, Tom. <laughs> and I said, I'll do it. <clears throat> and I got involved with uh, the breast cancer all over the state, groups from mm -hmm. survivors and all this stuff. And that's got a, it's an interesting story with this. And that was in 1993. Well, 1993 is the same year that the uh, boat issue come up, casino boats, which I was totally against. You're talking to a gambler. I don't, I don't mind gambling, but I just think it's bad for state to be involved in it, you know. In fact, I can go into a million stories about it right now. But. So uh, uh, I did the off-label drug bill. It was in the House the last night of the regular session. It was killed, and it was killed by a legislator and a uh, uh, staff member of Evan Bayes to be used as a bargaining chip in the special. They knew we were going to go into special session. The women's groups went crazy, the breast cancer groups, and I kept telling them they wanted to blame Evan Bayh. And I said, it is not Governor Bayh. It is not. I'm telling you right now that his mother died from that. He would never have approved that. Well, they were going, and I, I was having all kind of, you wouldn't have believed it. And uh, I had, was home here, oh, we lived on Wallen Road then, and I was laying in bed, I had a headache, oh, I had a terrible headache. 
And Shirley come in and she said, I don't know who's on the phone, but he said it's Evan By. And I picked it up and I, he said, Tom, it's Evan. I said, Governor. He said, I'm here to tell you that I'm announcing tomorrow the date for the special session. And I want you to know, Tom, I guarantee you that the off-label drug bill will be a part of the final package. And I said, well, Governor, I said, I hope you know that I knew you wouldn't have been involved in that. And the funny part about that is I found out later on from Bill Moreau, who is, was his chief of staff, he said, I've never seen Evan as mad as he was when that happened because Marbella died from breast cancer. So anyway, so we've got the, it's going to be in this one package bill at the end of that. That was the longest special session I've ever been involved in. And so uh, it goes up on the board to vote on this final thing. And I'm sitting here and everybody's waiting for me to vote. And I'm counting it all up and there's plenty of votes and I voted no. And everybody turns around and said, what? Like that. And it might, that was a pure no vote for the casino bill, or the casino votes. And everybody's going nuts that we voted no on this. <laughs> but, <clears throat> and uh, the gist of this story, and I, I know you're wanting to get going here. No, but, it's fine. But the gist of this story was, there was a woman that I knew from, I first met her in 1976, and her name was Francine Schubert. And if you know anything about breast cancer, and especially in this area, there's a special thing called Francine's Friends, which is a bus that goes around and treats those that are underinsured and uninsured, get free mammograms and all this stuff. And Francine, I was to an event towards the end of 90, must have been in the 99 or maybe it was 2000. And I was to an event and Francine was there and it was a breast cancer thing. And she came up and gave me a big hug and was holding me and all these women were laughing. And she said, let me tell you about this man. She said, he passed a bill in 1993 when I, my doctor gave me six months to live, and she said, here I am six years later and I'm still alive. <laughs> I've told that story, whoa. That was, uh, that was very, <clears throat> something that, She lived a, a couple of years longer than that, but but there are people, uh, <clears throat> there are women that are alive today that had cancer that long too. That mm -hmm. ah, excuse me. It's understandable. It's tough. So anyway, that was. That was a story with that one. Is that organization still providing that service? Oh yeah. Here? Yeah, in fact, uh, 
I served on the Breast Cancer Plate Trust, and uh, I just got them here. We now pay for the gas for it, the fuel. I don't know if it's diesel or whatever, but anyway, now out of that fund. We did it for a, it was kind of funny because they were talking about they were doing it for uh, a, uh, there's a similar one in, in uh, Evansville, but it's not as complete as what ours does up here. Mm -hmm. I said, Evansville? I said, what about the one in Fort Wayne, Francine's friends? Mm -hmm. Well, we just haven't talked to them. I said, I will. <laughs> so anyway, we now do that for that. But uh, yeah, that uh, that's another thing. I serve on that. I'm the only guy on that. I used to get on all of the all of the bills and anything that had to do with the women's when they created the women's what the heck was that called women's commission something. I was the only male on that one. <laughs> I think I saw too that you, I believe it was looking through your stuff, that you, you often would support, um, it's called like statewide women in sports days and things like that. Am I remembering that correctly? Well, I was always, it's like I said earlier, I was always a, a sucker for the, when it comes to the girls stuff, women's stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I just, you know, very proud of that. I really, I, mm -hmm. I always was very strong on women in government and mm -hmm. supported them very strongly. But uh, it's like I said, when you come from a household where you're, you're the only male, you learn real quick. <laughs> it's like how you got... <laughs> put you in line real quick. Yeah. Well, how would you... You know, I know a lot of the legislation that you worked on, like the point oh eight seatbelt seatbelt laws. Um, you had to work very hard for a very long time to get those through. Uh, so, how did you garner support for your legislation and to sustain that over time? I am not exaggerating. I have probably I don't know how many more I've learned since then, but I was probably knew or acquainted with over a thousand families who either lost a child or a parent or an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister. And, uh, you know, they were the ones that got me started. They were the ones that, uh, that would be with me. You know, when I'd be defeated, it would, it would crush me. I can still remember there were one time where it was the outgoing national president of MAD and the incoming national president of MAD and Tom Weiss and our picture was in the paper and we were balling. <laughs> we had just been defeated on the floor in the, in the, on the bill. And, uh, but I had all these groups and I, and I was, I, I, I think to myself, I'm not going to do it again. And I'd get a phone calls. I'd get phone calls on the day of the death. I'd get phone calls on the birth date of the person. I'd get calls on holidays, Christmas. And they'd say, you've got to do it again. You've got to do it. And I, I would say, I'm not going to do it. And then, damn. That's why if you look in there, you'll find out that 
there were years where my bill numbers were high numbers because I, I just, I'd say, I'm not going to do it. And then by the time I decide that I was going to do it, you know, I'd be way up in the, up in the numbers. There were several of the years where it was Senate Bill 1. That's the thing with Bob Garton. He allowed that to be Senate Bill 1 for many, many years like that. I had a situation one time, and I don't mean to be wasting time here with stories. No, this but, is exactly the, the type of thing I want to hear. But I got a phone call from, well, my secretary came over to me and said, hey, they're calling up from the front desk, and there's some gentleman down there that they don't know who he is, but he's got a book with him, a picture book, and he wants to see you. And uh, it's about the drunk driving. And I said, well, yeah, let him come up. And he was from Greenwood. And this guy come up and set up my desk, and he sat across from me, and he started talking about the, this was when I was doing the, uh, I think the open container. I guess I was doing both. And he sat across from me and he said, this is a picture of my granddaughter. And he opens the book and he turns it around and there was this little four-year-old, oh God, she was gorgeous. And he said, and he said, that's, she's four years old. And he said, this is the last time I saw her. And he flipped it over and she was on the slab at the corners. <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't be telling you these stories. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> he started crying. I started crying. Yeah. <laughs> the secretaries <clears throat> didn't know what to do. And they were trying, should we go over there and ask him to leave or yeah. what? Oh, that was horrible. Oh, I bet. But those are the, and <clears throat> those were the situations, you know what? Jack Green, his daughter's the one that was 16-year-old on her 16th birthday. We stayed, we stayed friends. I, geez, I haven't talked to Jack now for probably five or six years. But uh, he got involved. I got involved with, uh, you know, of course, all the sad chapters around. Mm -hmm. I had a, on one of the bills we passed, I wonder which one that was. We had uh, all of the state police and prosecutors. I got a picture of that somewhere. And uh, this guy come up to me and he said, Senator Weiss, he said, you don't remember me. But he said, I was a student at South Bend Adams High School. And I said, oh, really? And the reason that rang a bell was their vice principal was killed by a drunk driver. And those kids come down to talk to me. That's when I was doing, when I first started doing all this stuff. And he said, I was a member of the SAD chapter. And he said, after talking to you, he said, I decided that what I wanted to do is I wanted to go to school and become a lawyer and then become a prosecutor and work on these kind of cases. And I looked at him, I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. I said, what do you do now? He said, I'm an assistant prosecutor. And I think he was in, um, what's the county where Purdue is? Tippecanoe. It is Tippecanoe. I'm a deputy prosecutor. And I looked at him and I thought, oh my God. You know, that my kids never told me I ever did anything that made them want to, you know. Yeah. But it was, and I thought, oh my God. 
You know, what a positive, you know. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you what that kid's name is or... felt like you were making a difference when you would hear stories like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I made a difference on the, you know, with even those that lost the family. Jack Green, you know. Mm-hmm. Jack Green, to, to, to work through that, he became a speaker. There was a guy in Tippecanoe County, too. I can't remember his name. No, I don't know. And he became a speaker against... <laughs> excuse me, drinking and driving and everything like that. Yeah, those were, those were some really, those were some really great things to to be able to be involved with those. They had somebody that was in a position to do something that would, Mm -hmm. that would do something, or at least would try, so. Well, how was legislative business conducted outside of formal votes and committee meetings? Are people meeting for coffee and lunch or over a beer? I mean, how did how did business get done when you're not on the floor? Well, you at at your desk or at their desk, and in like you said, and you'd go out to dinner sometimes with a with a group of legislators, and I can I can still remember with. Uh, where we would do that, and it, and you know it was always good, to, great to go out with a lobbyist, but after a while that gets tiresome. You know they've got you captured for a couple of hours, and they they want to tell you their story and that. Well, sometimes you like to go to dinner and talk about other things. And uh, we used to garden. I can still remember when we used to go out with. Uh, there might be four or five of us, just us. We go out. And, have dinner and discuss stuff like that, but uh, yeah, you discuss it in informal, in informal situations. A lot of times with the legislation, and you, and you explain, you know. A lot of times it's a matter, you know. When when something comes out of committee, it's been usually it's been th- pretty thoroughly, uh, you know, investigated and stuff like that. But then you. Then you start getting people on the outside that are, well, here's what's wrong with it, or here's what's wrong, and that's where you start doing the amendment thing like that. But uh, yeah, you uh, you did a lot of those things like that. Uh, the lobbyist things about going to dinners with them, and, and it, uh, the fairness to it is, is that you know, uh, yeah, you got a free meal, but you also had a couple of hours of them captivating you to discuss their issue and why it was important or something like that. But uh, I never ever, and that's something that, you know, I mean, I'd be a fool to tell you that they influenced you to vote for them because they took you to dinner, but that never, you know, general public thinks that, but uh, you gotta be pretty low life to, to go and just, you know, be a, that's why you're voting for something yeah. because somebody took you to dinner. Yeah. But there were a lot of times where people would go and I'd tell them frankly it, I, I couldn't support it, you know. Just wasn't. I remember one time where two female lobbyists and they're both people that I dearly loved them. Uh, they were both about Tammy's age, my daughters, and they would come and they would talk to me and they had an issue one time where it was uh, it was a thing where 
uh, it's the uh, lenders, but the interest rate works out. It's like, it's like, I said, well, this is no, what they were trying to do is do it. And I gotta be, they were trying to do it where somehow it, it covered your, it would be your car and that your car would be your, the backup to this thing. And I was sitting there, I said, I said, I can remember, I said, we only had one car when I was a kid. I said, and my dad didn't have a lot of money. If my dad would have ever done something like that and he'd lose his car, well, Senator Weiss, our, uh, we're not like a, what they call them, money day lenders or something like yeah. that, where they're 300%, we're only 280%. I said, do you realize what you just said to me? And they both were sitting there. It was 280% is what an annualized rate would be. I said, I wouldn't hear that, Bill. And then later on after they didn't have that client anymore, they were telling me, oh God, when you said that to us, we both wanted to die right on the yeah. spot, you know, but, uh, oh, goodness. 280%. That's crazy. Um, I think you had mentioned this earlier, but you used to either own a condo or a house in Indianapolis. Would you stay at during session? I rented, I rented, let's see, I rented, uh, I rented down there the first time a one bedroom. And I started doing that in 90, when did I start doing that? In, uh, must have been late 92, because Shirley had her surgery in July. Yeah, so it must have been 92 I started. In 94, my daughter Tamara graduated from college and came to live and work in Indianapolis and live in her dad's one bedroom apartment. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is not gonna work. So I rented a two bedroom apartment over in Lockfield Gardens. I had that for a year and then I bought a condo in 95. In 2001, my daughter and my wife decided that there was this fantastic place on 33rd Street uh, that we could buy real cheap and, and restore it and it, you know and all this kind of stuff. It turned out to be one of the first mission homes, the mission style mm -hmm. in Indianapolis. It was built in 1898 and we had that until I had the chance to buy one on Pennsylvania that was a brick home and ever since I was a little kid I always thought anybody lived in a brick home, you know. So we bought and we restored that one. And then that's where Shirley passed away. And then after that, I wanted to downsize because it was a big home and we bought the home. I bought the home right next to it and finished, tore that right down to the stud the same way and restored it. But that first house on 33rd Street, they have a, every couple of years they do a thing where they, you know, people come around and they pay the, yeah, the home tour. Home, home tour. Yeah. And they called that the miracle on 33rd Street. But you should have seen it. It was the most beautiful, the wood in there. Everything was restored. I had, all I did was write checks. Yeah. <laughs> but those were my, that was my 
thing about, I actually had a home in Indianapolis. So I had two of everything. I had suits down there, I had blazers down there, I had shoes down there, I had clothes, yeah. everything. And when I sold it to my daughter and I had every, everything back, Goodwill and Salvation Army, man, did they gain on me. <laughs> I bet. So, um, did you only stay down there in session or would you, you know, travel back throughout the year? I was too? down, yeah, I was probably in Indianapolis. I, I'd say out of session, I was probably down there two days a, mm. two days a week, probably. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I became full-time. I mean, it was really kind of funny because you're, you know, you only get, well, you get per diem, but you only get one check down there. Mm -hmm. But I did, there was so much, and after 9-11 is when I really got heavily involved in Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has been, that was probably the, uh, the, uh, the best part of my career in that. I just, uh, you know, I, from my military, I had, I had an understanding of it. Uh, and then when uh, we formed the Counterterrorism and Security Council, I represented uh, Bob Garton on that, and I stayed on that until until I left in '14. But I did stuff on a national level. I was on the Homeland Security Advisory Council under Bush. I was on Global under Bush and Obama. I was on the Criminal Intelligence Coordinating Council under Obama. Uh, what else to do? That's why I've been going nuts. I've been wanting to do something, and the administration is all controlled out of the White House, everything. Even Coach can't get me. Coach has been trying to get me onto something out there. But, uh, so anyway, when I was saying I did a couple of days a week down there, I did a lot of national stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was all across the country. Well, well, let's go ahead and talk about that. Then how did you get, well, let me start with this. Um, how did 9-11 then affect how the government responded to those issues? And what that looked like in Indiana? Well, it was, uh, we, we res it responded very quickly. In other words, the Counterterrorism and Security Council was created in October of 2001. A month after that, it was created by Governor O'Bannon. And uh, what you did there is you had uh, all the federal agencies were involved, all of the uh, state agencies were involved, any agency that had to deal with, you know, it, obviously it was transportation, it was police, it was uh, IT, it was uh, any of these things that, corrections, anything that had any kind of a, of a connection or could have a connection with it. And we would meet on a monthly basis, and uh, I was very strongly involved with that. In fact, I think there were people that, because I, I took attendance, when I said that, I would, the lieutenant governor actually ran it, whoever it was, and of course at that time it was Kernan, a man that I totally loved, by the way, another Democrat I loved. We were very close. And, uh, but I would say, Joe, so-and-so's not here. All right, I'll take care of it. <laughs> the next meeting, they would be there. <laughs> but uh, but the state of Indiana did an excellent job. They did it under uh, 
under uh, O'Bannon and then, of course, under Kernan. It, it stayed under Kernan. But then when Mitch come in, that's when one of the things that I couldn't get done under O'Bannon, and don't ask me why, they just didn't, didn't go that route, was uh, the Fusion Center. And the Fusion Center is the connection that other states had done. Indiana hadn't done it yet. And uh, we finally put that in in 2006. And uh, the Fusion Center is the, the, the uh, what you call the filtering place for anything that has to do with terrorism, either from the feds coming back to the state or from the state going up to the feds. And on that, I got, I visited and, and, and uh, was involved in fusion centers and state of Washington, state of California, the state of Texas, uh, New Jersey, uh, Tennessee, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin. I, I look back on those and it's so funny to Colorado and uh, to establish them and to get them up and running. And uh, uh, they, uh, it's been an unbelievably successful program. In fact, I was just in the one that, they named the one, the Senator Weiss one for, in Indiana. Jim Merritt did that when I retired. They had that named it. But, uh, named after me. But, uh, so anyway, doing that national stuff was really, uh, that was really probably one of the most interesting parts of my career. Because, it, and you know what was interesting about it, even though that becomes political too, as you can see now. But it seemed like no matter what your politics were, you were working for the same thing. That was the protection of the country. Now you had different, maybe different ideas about how something should be or whatever else, but the basis for it was to make America safe. And that, that's, that's why I was so excited to be a part of it. It was like, you know, even though you, you may have differences on how something should be done, it was the end goal was always the same like that. So. Well, how did you first get appointed then to, to work on it at the state level? Well, uh, when we created the CTAS at that time, the Counterterrorism Security Council, uh, the, who was to be on there would be the Speaker of the House, the President Pro Tem, and it became there. They're not going to do that. And I went into Bob and I said, "Hey, Bob," I said, "I'd be happy to serve on that." And I had a military background, so Bob said, "Fine." And uh, you know, that's how that's how I got involved. And uh, uh, then, uh, what'd you say the, the? Well, I said, "How do you first get involved at the state level?" And that's how. Okay, so then how did that translate to the, being on the, the national committees? Then my involvement with with that, NCSL I served on, I was, at that time, I was, uh, uh, what was I doing then? I was, I think I was the uh, vice chair of transportation for NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislators, and they created a homeland security thing and they knew what I was doing in Indiana, and they asked me to be on that committee. Then, when I was on that committee, Mike Balboni, who if you ever watch Fox, when there's a terrorism event, you'll see Mike Balboni. He was the chair at that time, and when he left, I took over the chair of that, the task force. And so then from the task force is where I was asked 
for NCSL, I became a member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and a global and of the criminal intelligence. So that's how that thing evolved. And then when we created the Fusion Center, because I was doing the other stuff, then I got spreading out into those. So I did a lot of travel and a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff with the other states on, on their fusion centers. So. so what did work on those committees like entail? What, what were... Oh, you dealt with, uh, on Global, that was the, that's the information, uh, information systems. In fact, a funny story about why that's just funny right now. Um, on 9-11, after 9-11, one of the problems they had was the telecommunications. They couldn't, towers were down, stuff, oh, you know, nobody could talk to anybody. And uh, so the 9-11 Commission depicted that they should have a nationwide system. So the information part of Global, which is the Department of Justice program, that was encompassed within that, and you were, you know, you were working on stuff on, on, uh, on uh, uh, programs that that locals have, programs that the federal government has on on police police uh, agencies and how they do stuff and all that. Well, we started talking about what, in probably, wonder when that would have been. Must have been in six or seven. They were talking about the same program from 2000. When was the study done? It took two, I think. It just now went into effect about a year ago. After all these years, and it's called First Net. And Indiana, last year at the beginning, or this year, signed on to the First Net thing. But it's going to be another five years before it's ever complete. But eventually, what it'll be is police officers and fire and emergency management and all that will have their own network on tra data transmission, phones, all this stuff, so that you as a private citizen don't complicate and take down, you know, when an emergency happens, everybody wants to get on their phone. Sure. That's what happened down in Florida, just this last tornado or uh, hurricane. Yeah. Verizon went down. Their network went down. AT&T, which has the first net, they're the only ones that stayed up. So, uh, but the funny thing to me is, it's been more than 17 years, and it still isn't finalized yet. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how slow government can move. It's taken all these years for it to get this far. Wow. That's what's it. That's why when, you know, I said when I was disappointed because I would have liked to have still been a part of, mm -hmm. you know, and, but we worked on stuff that, uh, uh, you know, some stuff you couldn't talk about, but a lot of the stuff had to do with uh, um, uh, community, uh, community policing. Uh, you know, you were doing things that involved, and it was always uh, about programs and so forth that would be counter to the terrorism thing like that, the see something, say something mm -hmm. program. Uh, you know, there were different programs that yeah. we worked on like that. So that was, uh, but that was a, that was an enjoyable experience there. You know, I worked with, geez, I worked with guys from the FBI, I worked with ATF, I worked with uh, people from 
the highway the highway patrol head of the highway patrol for California, the head of the highway patrol for Utah, uh, the head of the highway patrol for New Jersey. Uh, you know, these were all guys that I was serving with, and it was so cool. Yeah. You know, here's this little state senator from the state of Indiana, and he's involved with them on their level. That was cool. That was fun. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some key legislation and committee work, mm -hmm. but just a few more questions before okay. we get to that. Um, did you have a sense of how people would vote prior to actual voting? You do in some cases. Uh, some of them you don't know. Mm -hmm. some, some would tell you, hey, I support this. Or unless I hear something ugly in committee, I, you know, I, I'm supporting it. And then you had others. Uh, I can remember on my own committee. Now, of course, I didn't have any control of who was on my committee necessarily. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I had people on my committee that would every year would, I shouldn't say every year, but several years would vote against it. And I'd lose it in my own committee, lose the bill. That's tough, yeah. especially when it's your own committee. Mm -hmm. what, what, you, what you learn there is to let it shrug off because what you could do is you could do a lot of things about not hearing their bills or stuff like that, and I never wanted to do that. But boy, it was really tough when you'd have somebody that, that yeah. especially on that one, you know, you'd be sitting there and you'd be talking about all these things with, you know, and you were getting a testimony from families and law enforcement and mm -hmm. everything else, and didn't matter. Yeah. And you know something that's funny? It never hurt them. It never hurt. I mean, the ones that voted against it. Yeah. It's easy to vote against something because you can always make an excuse to a to a citizen about why you didn't vote for something. Mm -hmm. The tough part is why you did vote for something. And that's usually the ones that they, you know, they won't, unless it was like that woman I said that was mad because I wouldn't do her biting on that one issue. So. Well, what roles during your tenure, at least, did party leadership play? Well, party leadership, you know, they set the tone. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they have a certain sense of, how things are going to be done because that's where they put the bills. Mm -hmm. You know, they could put the bills in rules, which basically kills them. Uh, they can put them in a committee where they 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 know it's not going to be heard, mm -hmm. or in a committee where the chairman is not going to be favorable to that. So, you know, the leadership pretty much can control that kind of stuff. Uh, I always thought Bob was fair about that, though. And, and uh, when he would assign something, uh, unless it was something that was totally ridiculous, uh, he, I mean, and I'm trying to think, I can't even come up with an example, but I, I had some where I knew he was sending it to me because he didn't want it, mm -hmm. he didn't want the legislation. So you, you try to honor that, you try to honor that. But uh, uh, leadership, we, we, we always had pretty good leadership while I was down there, I thought. And of course, when Bob left, 
which was unfortunate. He got defeated in a primary. I always thought I'll never like Greg Walker. That's who defeated him. Greg turned out to be a pretty nice guy. <laughs> That's the tough part of primaries, though. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're fighting amongst yourselves, if you will. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then, you know, the like I said, I don't, we had pretty darn good leadership, I think, while I was there. David Long did a good job. But there's a truism to it's like herding a bunch of cats. And it has to do with when you have the majority or like David Long had, a supermajority. Uh, because people are flaking off and you know, and then all of a sudden, how do you explain that? Maybe it's a, re, quote, Republican position, and, uh, uh, you know, you'd get people to do that, but mm -hmm. you just remember those things. Sure. <laughs> what does the public not know about how the General Assembly operates? The, what does the public not know? I don't know if there's anything that the public doesn't know, it's just that they don't understand. I think that's probably more, I mean, they don't understand the, the rules, um, they don't understand the, the system of how, of how, it, how it's set up. Uh, those are probably the things, but, uh, uh, but it's pretty much, you know, it's pretty much a right there this is the way you do something and this is the mm -hmm. and here is the rule book by what you do now one of the things i never did is i never learned all of the rules i never you know and it was always funny because people like joe harrison uh who's a long time deceased guy but he knew that book and he could go and you know, he could make a motion or something, and you go, where the hell did that come from? Mm -hmm. But there it is in the book. Yeah. And he knew when that could be used and where it could be used and how it could be used. And that, those are the guys that are really effective. Those are the ones that can, can do something by knowing the rule book. But John Q. Public, uh, they don't know all of those things, so they don't understand it. They don't understand amendments. They don't understand germaneness. They don't understand uh, how something like this. Uh, and you know, there are things that are done. In fact, there's a controversy going on with this last year. What happened? There's something where a court has ruled on a uh, on a bill. It must have been the budget bill where something was put in on it, and a, a judge in Indianapolis has ruled against it, and it's going to be a, it'll have to go up to the Supremes to see what they do, but, uh, you know, it got, quote, snuck in at the last minute, and, and those are the kind, of, those are probably the biggest part of where people don't understand. And, so more about, like, the processes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. One question, um, I know that for at least let me rephrase. When did you retire from GE? I got an early out in uh, July 1st of 2000, and I retired from the Guard in October 27th of 97. So you were about half 
of your legislative career still working and then half you're yeah. retired. So how did that work for your career when you were also serving and having killed it? Being in Indianapolis. Killed it. How so? Well, when I was allowed to run, um, you know, there are certain restrictions. GE wanted no, no question of anybody, hey, you know, uh, we're not going to tell you what to do and we don't want anything like that. And no appearances of any improprieties. But what they ended up doing was uh, they ended up, I was a zone manager at that time and I had zone responsibility. And at that time, let's see, at that time I must have had the southeast. And so I was responsible for distributors in all of the southeast parts of the states. And there wasn't any way I was going to be able to do that when I was gone. So each one of us as zone managers also had additional duties. So what they ended up doing was they took all those additional duty type things and they put it into a, and they created a job. And so the zone managers, they loved it. They didn't have to do it anymore. And they had somebody to do it. Well, how is he going to do it? Well, believe it or not, I had a laptop that was in Indianapolis with me. I did my emails. I would come back on, and on either a Saturday or Sunday, I would go into GE. There were people there that never knew I was gone. The only thing was my office was closed. That was the only thing that mm-hmm. that anybody knew I was gone. And then I could have been somewhere else and just had the... Yeah. You know, the office closed like that. So it really was a benefit. Now, you know, you could say, well, they created a job for you, but I still had a responsibility. Yeah. But uh, what it does is I went from uh, 85 to, I think, 94 before I ever got an adjustment in salary. And when I went to Indianapolis, I'm on a leave of absence. I was not paid by GE when I went down there. So it was really tough because I lost income by doing that. Now, GE then, at some point, I don't remember when that was, they allowed me to still take, we had a program for our 401 that if you donate 7%, you know, that's what you contribute, GE matched half of that. They would allow me whatever income that I would have made during that time, they allowed me to put in that 7%, they matched that. That's the only thing GE really did for me. Hmm. And uh, then uh, Sometime in the 90s, they ended up, I couldn't do anything with any kind of state PAC stuff, but I could be doing federal PAC stuff. So that meant I would be contacting all of the senior management for the motor business, which was a worldwide business for GE, and uh, for the federal PAC. So I did that thing, and they gave me an increase there. So that was the first time I got an increase. Now it's kind of nice because I was able to do that mm-hmm. as a part of my 
you know, it wasn't like I was added on a whole bunch of right. jo- or hours or anything like that. But uh, your career is cut, you know. So did I do a sacrifice? Yeah. Uh, did I sacrifice things for my family? I don't really think I did that, although I sacrificed time. And I just told Jane this the other day. I said, you know, I was so lucky I had girls because, you know, a boy, I mean, girls need their dad around too, but the girls were doing girl things with their mom. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the one thing there. But So I, uh, uh, the fortunate part of what I did is I did good investing. And... Uh, because of my wife, because I was not an investor when I married my wife. I, hey, you want to spend it, you know. And that's one of the saddest things that I feel now is that, is that I was able to accumulate and I can't share that with my wife now. She's yeah. not here. That, that bothers me. Yeah. That bothers me, so. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so, uh, uh, it uh, it used to bother me that when I was down there that I, I served with people that their companies continued to pay them just like they were going to work. Mm-hmm. Never bothered them, but I think it was because they were an international corporation. I think they were they were so damn sensitive about anything. They didn't want any kind of thing. You know, if there's going to be an issue that involves General Electric, stay out of it. You know, they were yeah. pretty pretty emphatic about that, which I did. Yeah. Which I did. Of course, I was happy about that in a sense because I didn't. I thought, oh man, I don't want somebody telling me I got to do this and got to right. do that. Well, we've talked, we've touched on a, a few of these, but what would you say were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the assembly? Most controversial? Uh-huh. Uh, abortion issues? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was doing the alcohol issues, those were, mm-hmm. those were, that was pretty controversial. Uh, the, uh, the gambling, and my reason on the gambling was, it's like I said, I, I'm not opposed to anybody that gambles. I, I go to I've gone to Vegas and I don't have any problem with that. But I was always sensitive about the state being involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are people today that still say, "Hey, all of that money was supposed to go to education." Well, that was never the what it was, and that was always the problem because we brought that money in and then we found ways to spend it so that and maybe. Maybe the spending that we did was good for some regards, but what happens when the economy goes down and gambling sources go down? That's happening now. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen more. It's going to be happening more. These other states are, you know. Yeah. So how do you make up that money? Well, you're going to have to do it through taxation or something else. So it was a matter to me that that we really didn't... If they would have said when we first did that, that we're going to devote that to infrastructure, totally 100% to infrastructure. I would have said, well, okay, maybe that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
But as it was, we didn't have anything that it was, you know, that it was committed to or anything else like that. And it was just a matter that we had more money to spend for all kind of things. And uh, when you got the money, you'll find you'll find a way to spend it. So. So then, did you do I understand? Like you felt like we were then going to be reliant on it. Yeah. And that was going to cause problems yeah. in the future. Yeah, because once once you have the reliance on it, what do you do when it's not there anymore? And, you know, like right now what's happening is, is that uh, we're, uh, you know, we, the state's finally moved on allowing them to be, you know, they used to have to be boats. Well, now they can be land-based. But now we're getting, the Indians are coming in up at San Francisco, or San Francisco, up at uh, <laughs> St. Joe County, but yeah. South Bend. Yeah. So what's that going to do? They're thinking that it's going to cut a third of the income out of the... Mm -hmm. The casinos up there, well, they cut a third of the income. That's going to be a third of the tax they paid to the state. And, you know, it's those kind of things that, you know. So what are we going to do next? What do you think it's going to be? You have no idea? What's New York doing now? Who knows? <laughs> New York is, is getting ready to go and uh, push for uh, legalizing pot. Oh, yeah. Michigan's done it, yeah. you know. And the funny part to me is, the funny part to me is, is that, uh, so I think that's what the next thing for Indiana will be. It's a, it's a tremendous tax base. And, and who do we get the taxes from? The poor people that are going to become addicted? <laughs> I don't know. So you feel like that's the next issue that's going to come? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Michigan's done it. Mm -hmm. Somebody else will do it. Illinois will do it. Yeah. They need the tax money, so then we'll do it. And yeah. You know, I, I know you're involved with lots of different, like very important issues that lasted a long time. But what legislation would you say you worked hardest on? Oh, I don't think there's any question it was on the anti-drinking and driving. I mean, that was, those were, those were some, those were year commitments. They weren't just session commitments, those were year commitments. And uh, um, that was, that's why it was so, when it would be defeated, that's why it would kill me so much because I, I mean, I was so, into it, I'm so ingrained into my thought process and everything, and then all of a sudden it's bang, it's over, it's done. You you didn't get it. Wow. So I think that was, uh, you know, on the. That was probably the the part that was where I I mean I really put the more blood, sweat, and tears into that. A lot of tears, believe me. Emotionally draining, just yeah, yeah. It, it was, it's tough to go and talk to a parent, you know, on the, another one was on the, was on the uh, child restraint. I can remember these, these parents talking to me where they had lost their child. Oh my God. You know, here is a guy that wanted grandkids so bad he was going nuts for them and, and somebody's telling me how they, they had a, child and a grandchild, you know, the parents would be their grandparents, 
be there and the, this parent or this child was killed because of a phew, yeah. that was a, those were tough those were really tough issues what then was your proudest moment as a legislator proudest yeah oh geez you know I think just saying that I served um you know, it's kind of funny because the proudness of, a, of passing a bill, you know, you feel good, you feel good for a couple of days and that's over with, you know. But just saying that, you know, that I, I did something, now did I have satisfaction doing it? You know, personal, yeah, I did, but the satisfaction came from, I put the, made the effort to do it, uh, and again, I was doing something that either somebody couldn't, wouldn't, or shouldn't do, or whatever the heck. I was able to go out and do it, and and do it, and it wasn't just for, I, I didn't gain from it. I mean, you know, if people would say, well, you got the same tax break, well, yeah, or something like that, you know, but, but uh, maybe, maybe if I passed that drunk driving law, I wouldn't lose a family member. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe if I, maybe if I did the seatbelt law, I wouldn't lose a family member. The maybe if I did the child restraint, I wouldn't lose a family member. You know, and if you want to say those were selfish issues, so be it. But it, it just, uh, I don't know. I just, just saying that I was able to go and especially last that long. You know, 29 and a half years is a heck of a long time to, you know, I only did 38 with GE. Only did 31 and a half with the guard. 42 with marriage. Those were a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just, I think the proudest thing I could say about it was that I had the ability and the, and the, uh, you know, the support of the people to be able to serve them and that, that was what probably I could say was the proudest. How would you describe committee work? Committee work? <laughs> oh, it's interesting. You know, you, uh, you get, to me what was always funny was you'd have an expert against the issue you'd have an expert for the issue. And you're sitting there and you're trying to evaluate it. And I'd sit there and, you know, when there were health issues, you know, I wasn't a medical doctor or I wasn't a dentist or anything. When they were social issues, uh, you know, I wasn't a priest or I wasn't a... (laughs) So you're listening to people like that and you're trying to decide and you're trying to decide not because it fits your mold, but what is it for everybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously your own feelings come into play like that, but I mean, it's just like with, you know, with, uh, with if it was religious issues. Well, I mean, so I'm Catholic. That doesn't mean that, you know, that there's 75% of the rest of the country or the state is is a different religion or something like that, and about, you know, I'm Christian, well, what about Jewish? 
you know, or any of the other. Like, so it, it's when you're sitting there and you're trying to listen to these people and analyze it out and say, well, this makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. You're going to make people upset. And uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the best example I can give of that is not that many years ago, the town of Fishers wanted to become a city. You cannot believe, I sit on the, uh, what was our committee called? The Government Affairs, I guess. And you wouldn't believe the people that came in to be against them going to a city and the people that were for it. They have, we finally voted to allow them to become a city. That has developed into something that is the, the biggest. <laughs> Fishers is now the, they're going to challenge Carmel here pretty soon on what the, but it, and, and it's created a whole new economic being out there. But uh, when you're sitting there and you know, you're, if you're a taxpayer, you're saying, well, yeah, I can understand you don't want to pay more taxes, but geez, maybe the way this thing's going to work out, you'll pay less taxes because you're spreading it out there. Yeah, but committee work is a—it's an interesting process because there are legislators that go into there with opinions. Mm-hmm. There are legislators that go in there with with uh, issues, either for or against whatever the thing is, and so you're trying to get around all of those things when you're trying to make up your mind. But it used to be a. It used to really be tough when when it was something that you were unfamiliar with, mm-hmm. and like I say, you know, when I was on the health committee, you know, there were issues that would come up like that, and you would think, well, I look at it as a patient, or do I look at it as a doctor, or do I look at it as an insurance company, or yeah, so. Tell me about the biggest hurdle you overcame. The biggest hurdle? Geez, I don't know. I never really thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of people that I got. I got a lot of criticism on the drunk driving stuff because uh, people were, were saying that I, I wouldn't bend and I wouldn't. Uh, you know that it was my way or the highway or something like that and but i i just uh you know somebody told me one time you probably could have had that if you'd have told everybody you'd put it into effect but give it a couple of years before it had an effective date and i remember when they when they told me that i said well that would mean that statistically I'm willing to look at another 500 people die on out Indiana roads mm-hmm. before it took effect. I said, I can't accept that. Well, at the same time, if I lost the bill, what did I, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was, that was kind of a, that was a, those were, I don't know, I guess you'd call that a, yeah. a hurdle was getting around that with having people understand it wasn't about you know, yeah, I got attention. I got national attention, but it wasn't that. It was a. It was the issue. Hell, all it would have been able to, been if it would have been passed, it'd have been passed. You know, and then you go on to something else. But 
I guess that was the biggest hurdle, yeah. getting that thing passed, getting that it, legislation. Is that the point oh eight? Is that point oh eight? What yeah, it took me four years to get open container. Four years. Somebody's got open booze cans in their car. You know what really was the kind of the the kicker on that one? We had a uh, legislator get killed by a guy. There were cans everywhere on that truck and on the roadway from the car, the truck that hit him, killed him. Sad to say it, but that's one of the things that helped me. All of a sudden, these guys saw it personally. They said, oh, hell, that was so-and-so. Jeez, you know, what a terrible thing. I don't know. Well, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? The most important work? Mm -hmm. To do the good for the people. I mean... Uh, it's like we, you know, what we've discussed earlier. You know, sometimes it's not understood. Uh, sometimes it is. Sometimes what's good for some is not good for others. Especially when you get into economic issues, because you know, uh, tax breaks are good for some, not good for others. Um, you know, when you pass certain laws uh, that negatively impact when I talked about the child restraint. You know, you got 10 kids, what are you gonna do? It means you have to have two cars or you have to split up with your, you know, but all of the thing, and it, you know, it's, I, I just, uh, I just always looked at, at something in the perspective of, I always, uh, Whatever I did, I always wanted to make life better for somebody. And, and boy, if you could save a family member, what better thing could you be doing in your life? And it, and it dealt with all of those issues. It dealt with the off-label drug bill. It dealt with seat belts. It dealt with the car, car seats. It dealt with drunken driving. All of those things were selfishly, like I said, if it saved one of my family members, great. But I was doing it not just for Tom Weiss or... So that was, uh, I don't know. Well, when did you leave the General Assembly? 2014. Okay. Did you decide to retire? Did you lose an election? What happened there? No, I, uh, you know, it's, you get to a certain point in your life and you think, you know, I've done this long enough and there are other people out there that, that want to do it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I've been satisfied with the things I've been able to do. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, if I'd have thought more about the Homeland Security stuff, I probably would have wanted to do another term because I enjoyed that so much. Mm -hmm. What I was doing was, I really felt I was that, geez, I would do that little piece of the puzzle. I can remember being in Washington and I was sitting there in a, in a, uh, in a meeting and we had this big discussion going on. And of course, I was there as the perspective of a legislator, how stuff, and that's what I, and I was in a discussion with this guy. And uh, <laughs> I said, uh, 
I don't agree with you on that. And he, what do you mean you don't agree? And I said, well, I don't agree, and here's why. And I went going through all this stuff. So later on, I said to somebody, I said, who is John McGaw? And he says, well, he used to be the head of the Secret Service, and then he was the head of ATF. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, holy shit. I, I can't believe what I just, what I was just arguing with this guy about. I was right, and the people were agreeing with me, and it was so funny to me. After I found out who it was, I was embarrassed. I didn't even, I didn't even want to talk to this guy after that. Oh God, that was funny though. The people that I was talking to though, they thought they got the biggest kick out of that because I wouldn't back down from him on yeah. his argument. <laughs> oh, the good old days. Well, I just have a handful of questions left here, but how would you summarize your time as a state legislator overall? Um, totally satisfied that everything I did, I did for the right reasons. Uh, I very few times did I ever vote for something that I didn't think was a was the right thing to vote for. And when I say that, you found it out after you voted for it, right. maybe. That's the way you did it. But I don't, uh, really, I don't have any, I don't have any embarrassment about any vote that I did because of how I felt when I voted, mm -hmm. that I was doing the right thing on that vote. Uh, might have found out later that I wished I wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, I look at my career as one of satisfaction that I did always think I was doing what was the best, and it wasn't the best for Tom Weiss. It was best for the, the my constituents in the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. I liked the thing that the district that I had was so compact that I could look at the big picture rather than just at my district because some legislators have six or seven or eight counties. So they've got a, a variety of issues that they have to deal with. They have little towns, they have maybe a little city, they've got farmers, they've got all this. I could look at the state. And so therefore, if you look at a lot of my legislation, it could have involved something that came up locally or something like that or in this area, but it really had a state impact. And that's what really was the satisfying thing, mm -hmm. was that it wasn't just that I was so parochial that it was only because of, you know, what it meant here in my district. Mm -hmm. I could look at it like that. And that's one of the things that I, that's why I enjoyed that part of it so much, mm -hmm. especially in the safety stuff like that, because it, it was yeah. the state Sure. It was a state. Do you have a favorite story or anecdote from your time serving as a legislator? Favorite story? Oh, golly. Uh, or do you have too many, probably? Yeah, there are a lot of stories. There are a lot of stories. I don't know that I've got a, yeah, a favorite one. And again, you probably we've sort of addressed this as we've gone, but what lessons, if any, did you learn? 
Well, I learned that uh, no matter how good you thought the issue was or how fair you thought the issue was or how proper you thought the issue was, there's always going to be people that think the opposite. And uh, the toughest part of that is, like we had mentioned earlier, is to convince people that either you're right and they're wrong or you do a better job of explaining yourself or whatever to to get them to come but uh, yeah it's funny because it's uh, it's interesting how you can see a subject matter and immediately think this is the answer and then all of a sudden you start listening to other people and you think whoa I never really thought of it that way and uh, I don't know that's uh, Has the state changed over the course of your lifetime? How's the state of Indiana evolved? Well, we've gotten more people, thank goodness. Uh, the economy has come back uh, very good, I think, in the last. You know, we've always been a heavy manufacturing state, but uh, like in my community, we saw a lot of loss of manufacturing. Um, harvester left. The motor business that I was with is totally gone. Totally gone. 10,000 employees in Fort Wayne are gone. International Harvester, 13,000 employees, gone. So it's kind of a, it's kind of good to see. Uh, and we're, you know, we've still got the good manufacturing, but we're, we're changing over to, uh, you know, IT is becoming a, a tremendous thing here in Indiana. Uh, so we're seeing the economy change, and we're. Hopefully, we're going to see the kid more, more and more kids. That's that's the part that always bothered me was how few people uh, go to college still in Indiana. There's still out here at the used to be IPFW now Purdue Fort Wayne. It's interesting to see the number of first-time family students, college students, still. You know, so we still got a long way to go for education, but. But uh, I think we've, uh, I think we've come through some. I think you know. I think overall we've done some really good stuff with the, the leadership that we've had, you know, in the state. I'm talking gubernatorial and mm -hmm. legislative. Mm -hmm. I think there's been good uh, good directions in that. Some bumps in the road. We found that out a couple of years back. <laughs> but uh, over the wrong issues, I guess. But. How has the General Assembly changed? Oh, it's changed. Uh, I've been surprised that... Uh, now, I don't remember what the latest count is now on... I think that uh, you do need more women in government. Um, in, the, uh, in the Senate, I think they're really down on the number of women in there. I always, I always thought that there should be more. That's why I was so supportive of Liz Brown when, when she was running. I'd, not really. I don't know what what's going on down there now, but uh, I was happy to see her replace me. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, the change is, I think it's become more conservative, and I I hate using that term conservative. It's uh, there's uh, there's just it seems like there's. There's a lot of people that are anti-government types. Uh, 
that are that are starting to uh, uh, develop more. You know, it started in ten, two thousand and ten. And, uh, Do you mean like tea party type or? Yeah, tea party. Uh, uh, those that that go to the, the extreme. You know, I always when I said I considered myself a conservative when I went down there, I was a conservative. I think fiscally and value wise. Uh, today, I think that isn't all it amounts to. I like the fact that uh, the art of politics is the art of compromise. I like that. I, th I think that is so valuable that, you know, that doesn't mean you compromise your principle, mm -hmm. but I think it's something that you have to, uh, you have to understand that there, uh, there's all sides. That's why I, I'm not a big fan of supermajorities at all. Um, I just think that, uh, that can lead to uh, that can lead to problems. Uh, when I say that, um, we had we didn't have a supermajority when I was there, did we? I don't know. We had a big majority, and uh, yeah, we might have been pretty close to one. But I think that uh, uh, it takes away from the ability to really debate an issue. You can debate it amongst yourselves, but that's not the, that's not the whole nine yards. But it's like I said, I think David did a good job of, and, and we did, of, of allowing the, the Democrats to participate in the Senate. I don't know about the House. I, I really didn't track that much over there. But, uh, uh, I mean, they still have their issues that are different than the Republican issues and that, but. I think we did a pretty good job of allowing them to be participants in the thing. Well, what, if any, enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Enduring qualities to Hoosiers? Mm -hmm. Bobby Knight? Is that, no, no. <laughs> this kind of thing. <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, one of, I think that just because of what I was talking about, where we are, even though there are super majorities and we allow, we allow participation by the other side in that, you know, I think that, uh, that it's more common sense. You know, you can be book learned and not be valuable at all. I mean, you may be the smartest person in the room, but that doesn't mean you got common sense. And I think that's one of the things that Hoosiers do have is that They've got common sense, and they do, they do look at, at issues. Uh, and I'm talking in, in, you know, in the in the majority. There's always the minorities that are, you know, they're they're either the ultra right or the ultra left or something mm -hmm. like that. And that's what I mean by minorities. But uh, well, I think common good common sense is what is really what Hoosiers have, and we've lived with and continue to have. That concludes all my questions. I asked a lot, but is there yeah. anything we haven't talked about? Or I don't know. Have I ended up giving you too much wordage, or no, not at all. No, you know, I. It's hard to get through. I think you know, 29, 30 years of service well, you know, in it's, just a few hours. But no, well, I'd be happy to talk to you anytime. But uh, but I, uh, 
No, it's uh, it's like I said. It's it's you know when I was done with the twenty nine years, I think at the end of twenty fourteen I was ready, surely ready to 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 get out, you know, and everything. But then after after a while, you know, you start missing some of the. And what I really miss are staff and the, the friendships that I had down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's anything that Tom Weiss had in Indianapolis was he had friends with staff. And whether it was the Senate, the House, the, mm-hmm. the auditor's office, the treasurer's office, any of them like that, because I always looked at them as, as positives that they represent something good for this you know they're trying to do their job for the benefit of of everybody and and they they just they don't get enough good credit done mm-hmm. by the whether it be the by the legislature or the bosses or whatever else there are people that are trying to really do their job and do the best they can and and uh, so you want to make sure you acknowledge them and support yeah. them yes. so but it's uh, now my my secretary just retired, and uh, that yeah. Back on just as we finish. Uh, but yeah, if you want to um, fill out the information there at the top, just your okay. name and address, and then at the bottom, if there's any restrictions, you know, we turned it off a couple times, so I'll make sure to no. yeah, that's off. In, but if there's anything else that you want. Um, I'm okay. But thank you so much. I'm sorry I took up so much of your time today. No, that's... I really enjoyed it and... This was... It's fun to talk about the... (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll go ahead and shut these off if you're okay with that. Yep.